Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Citations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of For All You Kids Out There. A Mets adjacent baseball perspectives podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostra. With me once again this week is Jarrett Seidler. Jarrett, the Mets had zero Rule 5 protection ads to their 40 man. Uh, Literally the only team in baseball. Yeah, I think it does. And, and really, like, I know oftentimes we'll do a, a podcast breaking down who they should add and borderline calls and giving you scouting reports and stuff. And we didn't do that last week because there really wasn't anyone to add. Other than the dudes from last year, no. I yeah, mean, I think they could have Newton, but... They could have added Harrell since they re-signed him to a minor league free agency deal and maybe you think he might be a guy that's in your rotation depth plans. You could have added... like it's, You know, it's possible one of Dyson Acosta or... Uh, Deno Nunez, like, popped in Instructs, if they were at Instructs. I don't even know if they were at Instructs. I don't know if anyone would have seen them in Instructs from other teams. Obviously, Mets Instructs got shut down early because of a COVID outbreak. Right. Weird year. But it does, I think, speak to the utter lack of success in drafting in the international market in the last five years. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've drafted well at the higher end at times. Um, we've liked their draft strategy. We've liked some of the particular guys they've went after. But let but... me use the uh, I sent it to Allison. Um, like the Orioles ads for this year. Yeah. Now, granted, the Orioles are not a great team. Sure. But I th- I feel like forty man ads are not particularly contingent on the quality of the team. It's like more you think is good enough to get taken in the rule five draft yeah. in most cases you know we talk about how the yankees always have too many guys to protect and they didn't protect like trevor stefan and uh garrett whitlock both of my expect will get picked addison russ too um so th- i don't it, think stefan will you don't think stefan will I, no. yeah, fair enough i think russ and whitlock i mean whitlock's healthy enough even I mean, if he's not really can be some done in IL. i i also i don't know what the rule five draft looks like this year i don't know whether teams are going to be willing to write hundred thousand dollar checks to take flyers on guys sure i don't know i mean we didn't even talk about the, like hunter renfro getting non-tendered and the reason i sent this Trevor to allison Williams. is because the orioles non-tendered renato nunez who was like one of their best hitters last year yeah uh anyway so their 40-man ads were rylan bannon who's like a quality Roll four, roll forty-five, utility type. Mm-hmm. Uh, podcast concern: Mike Bauman. Yeah, who's you know again like a, a basic starter setup guy type. You know, might have been up this year if he wasn't hurt. Yeah, he's uh, been he's been an off P fifty for the last couple of years. Uh, Usniel Diaz, fine. Yeah, at to- at one time <laughs> was a top one hundred and one prospect. Is no longer. I don't think you can really leave the 
centerpiece of your Manny Machado trade off the 40-man. Doesn't, doesn't look like he's going to hit, but there's still some underlying yeah. tools and skills he's shown in the past. Uh, Zach Lothar, who's like a deception and high spin heavy. He's like the better version of Kevin Smith. Sure. A little more fastball velocity. Um, Isaac Matson. I don't actually know who that is. I've probably seen him. I'm guessing he's like a generic 95 and a slider relief prospect. Um, that is my recollection. Uh, he's one of the guys that they got in the uh, Dylan Bundy Dylan Bundy deal. deal, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, he was not... I don't recall him being one of the ones that we had specifically tagged, but... You sure, know, whatever. He, he could have... He very easily could have popped in the last year and we didn't hear about it. That is something that... Yeah. And for all I know, you know, he's a 95 and a, if he, I don't know what he actually is, but if he's a 95 and a slider guy, like those guys do actually get taken. Yeah. So, um, I believe we had a Matson look in the AFL last year and it was sure. just kind of, it was that, uh, Alex Wells, who's like a crafty lefty with a good changeup, yeah. but it's also pitched in double a and yeah. yada, yada, yada. Mo- most of these guys, Matson, no, uh, but the rest of these guys all would have been the fi- top 15 in the Mets system we we broke out the mets list yeah the other day and uh th- this is kind of a transition to i guess the other main topic yeah. Sam, i'm pretty sure sam mcwilliams is the 12th best prospect in the system that sounds broadly right yeah and that that's not good so you know <laughs> i i like what they did here it's it was kind move. of yeah. it, it was kind of weird timing i don't know why you would have done this before the roll five draft instead of after because there's you know used to having that roster spot open for the next three weeks mm-hmm. but you know utilizing your i mean it sounds like there were a lot of teams in on him yeah so you, you would have so to make him a answer. priority uh priority ad um, i mean they gave him seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a 40-man spot so it sounded like a non-split contract too the way yeah, people did, were yeah. talking about which i don't um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not real clear on like how, like the uh, how this happened exactly. I mean, he was a minor league free agent, right? But I'm not clear why. I'm not clear why the Rays didn't add them to their own forty. He was at the alternate site. The reason yeah. everybody was. <laughs> The reason everybody was after him was because of his alter- alternate yeah. site track man. And the velocity popped, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and it was like, it was a lot of teams. That was, mm-hmm. that, that was a buzzy name even like a week ago. Like, I don't was... know. I do know the Rays. I saw the Rays added uh, like three or four guys. I guess the straight, the straight swap here is they took Drew Stratman over Sam McWilliams, which... Yeah based on the recent Drew Stratman reports. I don't know if he's the 12th best prospect in the race system, but he's going to be on the list somewhere. Now, I, I have a lot of... He would have been the 12th best prospect in the Mets system. He would have been higher than the 12th best prospect yeah. in the Mets system. Yeah. And, and we're saying 12th. Um, you know, I, I, we have yeah, a whatever. pretty good idea who the, the top, top 11 are, and then yeah. after that, it basically falls off a cliff. And... I'd probably take Drew Stratman over Colome and Zapucky pretty comfortably yeah. at this point, even though he hasn't pitched above... Like a ball and has been hurt the last two years, which but, I mean, well, I mean, the pucky haven't been they've been healthy when, either. When we say the top eleven, 
it's the 10 guys you think are going to be in the top 10 who are not actually going to be the top 10 because Jalen Palmer is going to be in the top 10 and is going to mm-hmm. bump probably Green or Wolf out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's exactly who you think plus Jalen Palmer. Yeah. Uh, and after that, it gets, it just, you're dealing with, you know, IFAs that haven't played stateside yet. And, you know, I, I, I'm guessing people are going to rank Robert. Some people are going to rank Robert Dominguez in the top 10. God God bless you if you want to rank an arm strength IFA who hasn't pitched professionally yet. Um, That's just not something we're going to do. That also describes like Scarlin Reyes from seven years ago. Right. Uh, But after that, you're down to to Colome. And, you know, Colome, you're down to Colome, you're down to Zapaki. We got good Zapaki reports from the alternate site. Uh, if they were that good, he would have been the majors. He was already in the forty man, and yeah. they desperately needed pitching <laughs> all season, and they never called him up. So, yep. you know, Colome, you saw what Colome looked like in the majors. He has not made it all the way back from Tommy John. He's still like, maddeningly fine. inconsistent. <laughs> yeah, he's still like fine. Uh, you know, and then you got Freddie Valdez, you got Alexander Ramirez, you have Servan Newton, who has been exposed to the last two Rule Five drafts. You've got Carlos Cortez, who doesn't have a carrying tool. Uh, it, it gets, it, it's, yeah, you know, Junior Santos, who MIA. Uh, yeah, nobody like you know we. Yeah, we have no Junior Santos information, which doesn't. But you know, Jordani Ventura, Daniel Nunez. Um, the other, Astadio, who may or may not be exposed to the triple-A phase of the Rule 5 draft. Desmond Lindsay, who may or may not be exposed to the triple-A phase of the Rule 5 draft. This gets ugly. You know. Luis Carpio, who they just re-signed as a minor league free agent. Yeah. <laughs> so Sam McWilliams is pretty high up on this list. Right? I mean, he's better than Riley Gilliam. Yeah. He's the best pure relief prospect in the system now. Yeah. So, he's not actually like a pure relief sure, prospect sure. either. He does have substantial starting experience as recently as 2019. Um, you know, he's bounced around a bunch. He uh, went from the Philly system to... I want to say there was a stop in the Arizona system somewhere in here. He's he was a Rule 5 pick of the... Uh, Royals. Yeah. And they returned him. Yeah. He went, yeah, traded, he went Philly to yeah, Arizona. They, he was Tampa. in the Jeremy Hellickson deal yes. to Arizona. And then he got traded in the Colin Pache deal to Tampa. And then he got rule five and returned by Kansas City. Hmm. One can just look these things up. So this is the largest contract ever given to an American minor league player who declared minor league free agency. Yes. Which is an interesting... Interesting... uh, Pronouncement, I guess. He, He throws hard. 
we were a little surprised he didn't stick in Rule 5 with the Royals a couple of years ago, because what the hell did the Royals have to lose? And it's yeah. a big arm, it's a big tall arm. This is the kind of guy the Mets have not been able to develop internally. Mm. They just have not been... It. This is like a better version of all of those crappy relief prospects they traded for a couple of years ago. Yeah. This is like better Jamie Callahan. Mm. So, from that perspective, it's a... Like, this is better than putting, I don't know, Stephen Vlines on your 40-man. Sure. Not that he's in the system anymore. Right. They still haven't announced who are the other people in those Rangers deals, have they? If they have, I haven't seen them. Yeah. Uh, My understanding is that teams are free to fulfill the players to be named later now without having to pull roster mechanic tricks, which they were having to do in September. Yeah. I don't know that a hundred percent. I haven't looked into it that much. That whole thing had to do with the suspension of the basic minor league contracts and stuff like that. And was really confusing. And somebody with the team tried to explain it to me and I understood like 70% of it. So, Yeah, that this is a reasonably smart move and a way in which they can leverage money against team leverage smaller amounts of money against teams that are being relatively cheap, broadly speaking. Right. It's not gonna really move the needle. I mean literally the Rays could have probably just added this guy for like literally the cost of a forty man spot and the forty man like sixty K split or whatever. Right. Could have kept uh, him. Now look, the Rays And then traded him. And then traded him, yeah. Uh, Again, I don't know their exact forty man situation, so it, it's rough. Yeah, they, I'm sure it is. You know, I'm, I'm sure most teams. Would I mean, they DFA'd Hunter Renfro, so yeah, done something like that. But yeah, no, the, the Rays have a forty jam log, man. But you know, at the same time, it's a relief guy. It's not. We're not talking about a yeah high end prospect here. We're talking about a guy that you know probably ranks right behind Thomas Zipaki in the Mets system. Mm. Which is also, that's a that's a reminder that for all, for five years, Mets fans have been talking up Thomas Zipaki. Including us. <laughs> including us, because at one time he was yeah. a much better prospect than he is now. But like the, post, the post-injury Thomas Zipaki yeah. that we've been talking up for the last three years... He's not demonstrably better than a prospect that, than a guy they were able to get for absolute free talent. Yep. And that's kind of a check on... And kind of a similar profile, too. Obviously, mm. Zipaki's left hand and he has a better chance to start. But, you know, McWilliams probably has better stuff at this point. Yeah. You know, so, you want a guy coming off Tommy John with that kind of stuff, and that's closer to the majors, you got Garrett Whitlock. Right. Um, who... You know, he's rule five eligible. Yeah. I haven't looked real hard at rule five. He either. stuck out. Uh, Lolo Sanchez is exposed, mm-hmm. which I was a little surprised about. I'm assuming uh, the Pirates are banking on nobody being able to keep him in the majors for a year. Sure. Um, and a couple other. I mean, they did add Rodolfo Castro, which was interesting. Yeah. I thought I was surprised they added Rodolfo. Yeah. Over it seems Lolo like Sanchez, Sanchez is like a speed and defense outfielder would yeah. be an easier stick than Castro who's really can't yeah. play he's like the utility guy that can't play shortstop 
I also just having seen a fair amount of those guys yeah. think Sanchez is a better prospect, right. and I think Ben also agreed with me on that. Um, not again. Yeah, slightly better prospect. And teams teams make mistakes. You know the Phillies exposed Rafael Marshawn last year, yeah. which I was very surprised when they ex- exposed him, and I was even more surprised when nobody took him. Yeah, again, it's, and, it's like who can you carry? Like the kind of guys that. Like, it's probably more likely Addison Russ gets taken than yeah. Clark Schmidt, because you... I'm sorry, not Clark Schmidt. Uh, Garrett uh, Whit- Tra- Or Garrett Whitlock, because yeah. you can just, like, uh, but, drop him right in the majors. But, you know, you can hide a guy like Raphael Marshawn on a bad team as a backup or a third catcher, and nobody tried to, mm-hmm. and it turned out he was much closer to major league ready than anybody realized to begin with, and... You know, he's not a one-on-one prospect, but he's not that far off either. Sure. Uh, like, is he that much worse than William Contreras? No. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. But, and, but you can also, like, you can just... The Padres did this with Luis Torrance yeah. a few years ago. Like, you can just... If you're going to be a bad team... It didn't really just, work, but yeah. Luis Torrens is... He was, like, too far away, I think, but yeah. going to be the Mariners' starting catcher this year? Yeah, probably backing up Tom Murphy, but yeah. Yeah, or... You know. And he was probably only going to turn into a backup catcher anyway, so... I I like Luis Torrens. Sure, sure. He's fine. He's not great. But there's... There's nothing saying you can't pull a catcher out of A-ball and just make him your backup catcher. It's not, like, the end of the world, as long as he can relatively catch okay. It's not like your pitching staff's going to rebel on you. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's not like if the Royals had taken Rafael Marchand in the Rule 5 draft last year, they wouldn't have just been able to run him out there for 35% of playing time. It would have went fine. I mean, the Padres didn't even really do it. Well, I guess the well, Padres played him 56 games. I assume some yeah. of that was backing up. Played backup catcher. Yeah, he was their backup time. catcher. Yeah. He was absolutely awful, yeah. but who cares? But I mean, for, again, as sort of a backup catcher this year between San Diego and Seattle, the 24-year-old, he hit 257, 325, 371, which for your backup catcher, it's perfectly fine. Good even. Yeah, fine. yeah. and that wasn't, there was never a lot of bat there. Right. Really. That was always more of like a nice defensive profile with a little bit of hitting ability. Yeah, and I mean... You can talk about how it's scuppered his development, and maybe it did to a certain extent, but you know, as a 20-year-old, he got to A-ball, so you'd expect him to get back to the majors at 20, or get to the majors at 23, which is basically when he got back, and he hit fine in advanced A at 22, and quite well at double A at 23, so, so it didn't really... Yeah. Uh... Now, I don't know if you want to run that back with you know you got to pick the right guy that can handle it but you know some some guys that i think it's worth mentioning and uh sam dykstra of mlb was kind of tracking this which was helpful yeah um lennon sosa in the white Sox system is a decent prospect he's very 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 far away um Mario Batista is a prospect that we've liked quite a bit. I don't think you can hide um, him. He's like better Sherbian yeah. Newton. Yeah. Um, 
Riley Pint was a top five draft pick four years ago and still throws <laughs> extremely hard yeah. at times. Uh, there is very severe walk problems. Yeah. But at times he's still flashing two seven pitches. Maybe a change of scenery guy, but Yeah. Um Jose Rivera in the Astros system. Yeah. The Astros are also jammed here. Yeah. They had to dump Brandon Bailey for basically nothing because they needed a spot. You know, Jose Rivera is a guy that had a little bit of buzz at this time last year. Mm-hmm. Also in their system is former Mets prospect Luis Santana, yeah. who is not protected, um, who went over in the J.D. Davis trade. Again... It's too far away, only plays second base. Yeah. <laughs> nice prospect. Has 66 at-bats above <laughs> short season A-ball. Right. They had an injury last spring at Corpus and just sent him there for a couple of weeks to fill in. But he really hasn't played above the pen league mm-hmm. yet. Uh, so Matthias, who went through last year. Um, the Angels exposed a bunch of guys that I feel like have some level of interest here. Uh, Packy Naughton, who they got yeah. from the Reds. Um, Alvaro Ortega, who made their top ten pretty recently, yeah. I think. Peggy Naughton's uh, also the kind of guy, if you just need yeah. somebody to throw 150 mediocre innings for you next year, you can probably do that. Yeah. Uh, Jose Soriano, Levant Soto, Orlando Martinez. like These are yeah, all may, relatively yeah. better prospects in their system, which is still kind of weak. Yeah. Um, the Dodgers exposed Brett DeGoose, who I expect is going to go. Would be shocked if he doesn't get popped. Um, he might be the first overall pick. Right. He's, you know, a probably roughly major league ready middle reliever with a little bit of upside. Those guys tend yeah. to get taken. Um, Wander Javier. <laughs> I believe he's a second year. Yeah, I think so. Uh, exposed guy. Uh, Zach Brown in the Brewers system is a guy that we've liked yeah. it, it, in the past. Uh, Lazarito is exposed. Again, which, probably too far away. Yeah. Uh, Buddy Reed is kind of the type of guy that maybe... Yeah, I could see someone using him as a... I mean, the defensive tools yeah. will play, and there's, again, some yeah. upside with the bat, Defense but it will speed. probably never hit. Yeah, defense speed. Uh, the Phillies exposed Daniel De Los Santos, which I'm a little surprised about, I think. Yeah, I've always liked him. Um, also, Jalen Ortiz. Uh, Lolo Sanchez, um, um, Lolo Sanchez, I think, was probably the second best prospect exposed, and we'll get to the best in a second. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's pretty good. Yeah. Um, the best prospect I think available in the Rule 5 draft this year is Tirso Ornelas right. in the Padres system. I don't think you can carry him, but... Yeah. The Padres exposed a lot of talented <laughs> sure. players. They exposed Ornelas, they exposed Destory Ruiz for the second year. Mm-hmm. Um, they exposed Pedro Avila, who I think might actually go here. I mean, I think the from the Padres' point of view is because they weren't in the alternate site share, like teams probably don't have data on these guys so they may not be confident yeah using their if if you plan on making a rule five pick you're probably going to want to do it on someone you have more present information on yeah and 
you know, they did protect Tukapita Marcano, right. who I think was a good enough prospect right. that he would have went no matter what. And they protected Reggie Lawson, who's the type of prospect that gets popped in this. Right, but, but if you're looking at, like, Tirso Ornelas versus Lolo Sanchez, you have probably better and more recent information on Lolo Sanchez. Probably. And, you, and but... even if you think Ornelas is the better prospect, which... You know, Very well, might be Sanchez is probably more. We had a fifty-five OFP or or an Ornelas last year. It was like, I mean, he didn't really hit in the Cal League at all. Is the thing, right? But he does have experience at high A, mm. and he does have a very broad group of skills, and a lot of scouts like him. I think he's the best prospect exposed yeah. in this. Um, the other Julio Rodriguez. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Rays expose Moises Gomez again. Sure. Um, the Blue Jays exposed other Kevin Smith, which the infielder. I could yeah. see somebody taking a yeah, shot. Yeah, I think I heard it. better things about him this year. Like they yeah. un- and, unborked um, his the, swing. The Nationals exposed Israel Payne, sure. which is again the A ball catcher you know, thing. Kind of in that. Uh, Luis Torrens thing where you could plausibly just kind of stick him as your backup or your third catcher and watch him hit 160 and mm-hmm. who gives a shit. So, but that's, that's your, that's your real five for you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I would be surprised if the Mets made a roll five pick, but not shocked. I mean, they have plenty of 40 man space. If there's somebody that, yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, they could literally add a, I don't say significant prospect, but a a prospect would be top 15 in their system from this. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you're looking towards competition, if you can carry Tirso Ornelas for a year. Lola Sanchez, maybe, but you're going to, like... That's a tough... That's a tough ask. Yeah, that's... But even someone like... uh, Brett DeGoose. Brett DeGoose, I can see, you know, Garrett Whitlock, you can hide on the IL while he finishes rehabbing. Right, Uh, like, you know, is Brett DeGoose really a worse reliever than Brad Brock? Probably not. And I know he doesn't have, like, high minors experience. You're also putting yourself in a situation where he's also not optionable. Yeah, neither neither is Brad Brock. Yeah, right. So... Yeah, the Mets were the only team in baseball that did not add. I mean, there's really no one that it was worth adding. Yeah, but that's that says say something. Yeah, stunning indictment of because you know, Sherman Newton's probably still a top twenty prospect in the system. Daniel Nunez is probably a top twenty or twenty five, and Acosta's probably a top twenty or twenty five, and you know. I see you people on Mets Twitter talking up, you know, Tony Dubrell. So <laughs> somebody thinks Tony Dubrell is good. And somebody thinks, you know, Michael Otanez is good too. And those guys all didn't get added either. Yeah. Uh, I actually missed it. Akil Badu would be interesting. Yeah, has he gotten to double A yet? I think so. I think he got there and was terrible. I think that sounds now right. Now looking at this quickly. Uh no, he was in the Florida State yeah, League, but he's coming off of Tommy John surgery. Yeah, so it's kind of a weird. Again, weird that kind thing. of makes him easier to hide. But 
again, not that long ago was a pretty significant prospect. It's only going to be still has the underlying skills. You know, just turned twenty two too, so yeah. you're getting um, you know, most of your roll five picks are going to be twenty three, twenty four, twenty five. Yeah. Um, for the most part. As you can tell by us discussing Sam McWilliams and Rule 5 for 20 minutes or whatever, it's been uh, not a whole lot going on in the Mets world since we recorded on, was it Wednesday? It was Wednesday, yes. So uh, we'll go uh, Mets adjacent now, Jarrett, and take a break and bring on our good friend David Roth from Defector. I said we were going to go Mets adjacent with our good friend David Roth. So, David, we're going to start by getting your take on the Chris Flexen gif from the KBO Series Game 2 I just sent you. I think everybody knows uh, what gif we're talking about, yes. uh, but I'll describe it anyway. Okay. Uh, so, it's probably him getting squeezed on the it's a, inside it's a two, corner. It's a 2-1 pitch with a runner on second in the sixth inning, and they're up 3-1. This is how you know it's the KBO, is that it's the sixth inning when Chris Flexen is pitching, and they're winning. <laughs> uh, so he lights into the umpire. Like, it looks like he's saying, where the fuck was that? I think it's that's a fucking strike. Yeah. All right. Uh, he, first of all, looks different. Uh, like, not just because he's wearing a uniform that's got, like, a bunch of advertisements on it for different Korean sodas. Although that does kind of take me out of it a bit. He looks fucking fired up and confident. Yes. Like a maniac. Uh, which every time I saw him pitch for the Mets, and I don't I think this is just me projecting, he looked terrified. I think mostly because he had just like whenever he was in there, he had just given up like three consecutive doubles. But this is a different sort of dude. I'm not sure that he seems as uh sympathetic a character because he kind of it's like there's a, a real Bumgarner vibe well, to well him. you say that david I, I speaking, speaking, scherzer. yeah scherzer is <laughs> actually because he looks physically more like him speaking yeah. of the Bumgarner vibe uh 22 and a third innings 27 strikeouts six walks four earned runs allowed at the playoffs so far he uh won game one of the previous round and closed game four for a three inning save so this is i wouldn't say that jeff's exactly been tormenting me mm. with this but throughout the season he's done a very good job of keeping me posted on just how incredibly fucking well chris flexen has been pitching for the Doosan Bears. Yeah. He's going to like get a multi-year major league contract off of how good he's been. And he's still like 26 or 27 years old, right? Yeah, I think he just turned 26. Ridiculous. I bet whoever had uh, him in their organization is kicking themselves, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is the other thing that we've talked about. I can't quite get to the point... Well, like, you can't get you can't like get upset that they didn't hold no, on to Chris Flexen. I never saw but... him look good as a Met for even a minute. So I'm good as a Binghamton Met. Yes, that's like uh, the other like you guys both saw him and had like these minor league looks, and Jeff had a shared like a scouting report, and he was like like a fifty or fifty five or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is the sort of thing that would be like valuable to an organization that is otherwise bereft of such players if that organization did not he literally uh, got called up the problem with david he got called up a month after i saw him and he was not a present 50 or 55 
they called them up as like a that was like a spot start thing. Yeah, or they needed a, like a fresh Emergency, arm. Yeah. It's like they always needed. Basically, from 2017 to 2020, they always needed a fresh arm. Yeah, they were on their eighth starter by July. <laughs> he threw like. 30 or 40 innings that year with, like, an 8 ERA. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was just terrible to watch. I, I always thought that Ganyo looked better because, like, you could sometimes get an inning or two strung together. Like, Flexen just didn't look like he belonged, which I guess that makes sense if he shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot of organizational stuff that, you know, sort of militates against these guys developing just given the way that the Mets were. But it's shocking the extent to which, like, getting called up for those spot starts seems to do like lasting damage to those pitchers in a way that I'm not sure it does elsewhere. Like you have to go to a different organization or a a different continent because Montero is the other guy I was thinking of too, that like they throw him to the wolves and like, it seems like other teams do that, but then like it just haunts them. So can I just say this at this point? I'm writing the Mets essay in the annual, like whatever. Um, so I've done a lot of research over the last two months, which I've hinted at on the podcast about, let's let's say, the end stages of the Wilpon era. Because mm-hmm. the, the essay... The Lions really, in winter. Right. You can really <laughs> only write one essay this year for, if you have the Mets chapter, in my opinion. It is these fucking assholes... They're gone. The new guy seems cool. That's yeah. basically the essay, right? What else is there to... I mean, nothing else has happened yet, but also, yeah. like, yeah, this is that is the story. Right. So, part of these fucking assholes is just how badly they let the analytics and player development infrastructure of the team just, like, completely stagnate. Yeah. So, so you've got stuff like Chris Flex and... You know, kicks around. You know, he gets drafted as a so, yeah, let's, let's, high school guy. He kicks right. around the lowest levels in the minors for three like when or four I saw years. him in Savannah. Yeah, he was like projectable at the at that point. Obviously, he right. had projected a fair bit since physically, but, but, there's but it was like and there's low nineties and like a projectable curve. Like had a nice shape. He didn't always command it great. The the nineteen year old and a ball. The first four years of his professional career, he never cracked 70 innings between being mm-hmm. in short season and injuries, and it's all at low A or lower. So 2016, he finally gets on track as a full season in high A. The next year, after seven, he has another injury, and then seven starts at double A. They call him up to the majors and get him, he gets absolutely lit up. And then they just like gave up on his development after that. So they, there was no attempt to like build a foundation here with this pitcher and develop this pitcher. It was just, okay, you've thrown in the high minors and you're on the 40-man roster. You're not a prospect anymore. Congratulations. You're just an up-and-down guy now. <laughs> and that, that, it's funny. Like I always have tried to kind of like separate the that awful process from like the owners because it does seem like you know they hired people or whatever but that feels like the Wilpons like that feels very much like all the the rage cuts that they did you know like keeping Darno dumping Darno like all the things that people complain about uh by which I mean things that I complain about uh often with you uh too are like that is reflective of the like whatever like Jeff or Fred watching and be like I oh, sucks he doesn't have it yeah you know what the most amazing thing in all of this is David go ahead the the Dusan Bears, mm-hmm. obviously, I would assume 
saw all this from flexing in the majors. I don't know how much due diligence they did for like triple a track man or anything like that. I don't know what their player development and analytics infrastructure is quite possibly better than the Mets. Yeah, this is, I thought that was maybe where you were going. I'm about to, uh, I'm about to explain why. I know for a fact there's a KBL team with better infrastructure than the Mets because I know several people that work for it Uh, or did work for, I guess. uh, They gave Chris Flexen a $1 million contract, which is the max for a rookie foreign player. And they were right. He was one of the better pitchers in the league this year. I mean, it's still, he's still Chris Flexen. I think we should. Sure, sure, sure. But that is, it's absolutely true that like, like who Chris Flexen is, like whatever, it's not the sort of thing where he's going to be mistaken for Max Scherzer outside of a amusing gif, but it's still like, it's so obviously useful to a stateside baseball team that it's incredible that uh, the Mets would just give it away like this. Going back to the Jeff Wilpon thing for a second, and to a lesser extent Fred, although as you go through the 2010s, Jeff starts popping up a lot more in these stories yeah. than Fred. Just over the last 10 years, the amount of micromanaging and involvement in absolutely routine, mundane matters that should be the province of like a baseball ops intern that Jeff was doing himself... Half of this shit's not not even reportable because it's just like you know stuff we heard along the way, and most of the rest of it isn't enough to fit in like a twenty two hundred word essay. Have we talked about I think we've talked in the show with them like kiboshing Jason Kipnis for Paul Seawald or whatever it was. Yeah, they didn't want to take like, on the money. Shit like that, but even not like that. Like he used to he used to edit the when they would when the PR department would put out statements on player injuries he used to edit them how would you like tell me a little bit more about how one would edit because having read them it's <laughs> not this and also having edited a lot of copy it's not the sort of thing where there's like too many adjectives in it but like sometimes like if there's too much description or we want this a little more vague or we want this a little more specific or is that, that how like yeah. jed lowry wound up be, like missing two seasons with a body <laughs> issue yeah like it just shit like that like you know looking at workout schedules for a ball players Again, not not just something that the literal COO of a major league baseball team shouldn't be doing, shouldn't have time to be doing. Yeah. When you're in charge of stuff, you need to prioritize and delegate, you know. We we need to do that at baseball prospectus. I'm sure you need to do that at defector. Like yeah. there's there's just stuff that you can't do that somebody else on the staff should be doing because they're like writing about a botch punt oh wait yeah but it is like this well that is the that's sunday you know that Mm. was it was fun to do but it was like it's the sort of thing where that is a like that's the the most basic element i guess is to reiterate jared's point of like what it is to work on a team is understand what your strengths are understand what other people's strengths are trust them to do their stuff well and try to do your stuff well and that there's nothing else as much as we like to hear you uh, pontificate on the women's division in AEW, David. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, like, you do kind of hear it in there, because it's like, every bit of wrestling copy that runs on the site, I edit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that happened, like, it was it just, I guess some of it is default, but, like, yeah, that is the sort of thing where, like, people are now pitching these things to me, and it's like, if you read enough of them, like, yeah, I got thoughts on the AEW women's division now. Like, I'm upset about it. 
and I've never watched it. <laughs> I really can't imagine any circumstances under which I would. This, this is going to be an aside, and I may be misremembering this. Were you either doing or did a podcast with Bix recently? Yeah, I did. So it's <laughs> funny. I worked with him on a story that wound up running at Business Insider. Oh. It's like a really long, gestating, like difficult-to-report story. And we were working on it at Deadspin. And it was, like, just as the wheels were coming off, like, we were getting there, like, Megan was going to read it, then Megan left, like, then the lawyer that would have had to vet it left, and then we just sort of were dead in the water, and then I left. And so I worked with him on that story for months, and then we recorded, after he sold it to Business Insider, um, after Deadspin went away, he, like... So they had to go through a whole big process. But, like, once he got it to the point where they were cool with it, we, like, did his podcast to talk about, you know, what was in the story and, and the different documents and stuff that he had. Uh, which were, like, Phil Mushnick had yes. given them to Bix. And so we were getting – this is how I found out about the story. was We were getting emails from Phil Mushnick, which were written exactly like Mushnick columns. <laughs> <laughs> like in the sense that they were uh they were very uh, he was uh, clearly upset but i was also like i couldn't really tell what he was talking about like or why he was upset but he was clearly upset at our wrestling writer david bixon's fan and so whatever we we did this podcast and then like the story at business insider like they had it it was a long edit it was you know it needed a lot of vetting because you have to uh, what's the fucking lawyer, the WWE lawyer? Jerry, Jerry McDevitt. Jerry McDevitt. <laughs> you have to wait for him to, like, threaten you a bunch of times and, like, make sure that it's specious and then go ahead with it. So we recorded, I recorded that podcast with Bix in January over the course oh of God. literally four hours. There are no yeah. short conversations with him. I love the guy, but there are no short conversations with him. So we recorded it in January over that period of time, and then he was like, I'll put it out when the story runs. And then it just <laughs> sat on his hard drive. Until the story ran, like, last month. And then we called... He called me again. We, like, did a little refresher so that people would understand what was going on. Now, now that was over the Ring Boy scandal, correct? Yes. Yeah. That is, like, literally one of the worst things that's ever happened in any form of entertainment. And it's, people just don't <laughs> know about it. It's yeah. unreal. And what's funny is that, like... It's not that, like, people don't know about it, but also, like, it was widely reported. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. it was re reported by, like, fucking Mushnick and, like, the San Diego Union Tribune and stuff. But, like, it was also on TV. This is real. And, like, Wasn't it there, was like, in was the culture. Phil Donahue or? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. the yes, famous Donahue. Donahue where Donahue had to put Dave Meltzer in between yes. Bruno San Martino and Vince McMahon because he was afraid they were going to try and kill each other. But that was how it was basically, it played out as, like, another sort of, like opera bouffa wrestling you know right. bit of goofery when it was like literally a wwe employee like using the sport as like a grooming pool for teens to abuse sexually yeah just absolutely my uh it's a really good story i mean bix did a, a really good job with it it was just like it's hard not just because of the threats of lawsuits and stuff but like these yeah. guys don't necessarily want to talk they already told right. the truth yeah. and everybody fucking ignored it my, uh, so this actually goes back to when WWE made the Saudi Arabia deal. My, uh, friend, who's also a friend of Bix's, uh, did the New York 64 tournament of the worst things WWE has ever done. 
Um, and that won. That beat all the steroid stuff. That beat all the Chris Benoit stuff. That beat WWE's wrestlers being held hostage in Saudi Arabia. Yes, they just they just settled that. They just settled that for like thirty nine million dollars or something. Yeah, they settled the class action stock suit because didn't want that going through discovery. No. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that actually that actually and people just don't like that's just something that's gotten completely swept under the rug. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it came back sort of into the news this week with them firing Zelina Vega after the unionization tweet, even though it wasn't specifically about the unionization tweet. Is about trying to monetize. Bex's article yeah. on that, by the way, was very good. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I read it when it came out. It was. I do wonder terrible. if, like, finally, SAG after is actually going to do something here. I have my doubts. Yeah, but... he's he's been talking to them. I'm trying to help him place a story on that because I think he's he's started gathering string like in a journalistic way. I think before or like more uh, vigorously than other you know people that would report yeah. on it. Yeah, but. It's funny that in this case, that involves, like, repeatedly pestering Gabrielle Carteris. I was going to say, I was just comment. very excited to learn that Gabrielle Carteris is the head of SAG right now. That, if I'm being honest, that's, like, part of why, like, when I saw her name pop up in a G-chat from him, I was like, didn't expect that. All right, let's, <laughs> let's scroll back and see what this is about. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's that. Do you know how old Gabrielle Carteris is? She's got to be, like, 60 now, right? She's 59. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of tweets, David, yes. uh, the Mets' new owner seems to make a lot of them. He's a poster at heart. I he would is. not. And, which is so, here's honestly, my if theory. someone told you your next owner is going to be a guy who posts a lot, like you would back away. And yet, right? It's like Long Island poster energy. Yes, it absolutely is. Bagel boss vibes. It's like yeah. it could be Richard Staff's grandfather. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, like, it's like a looper scenario with so, uh, with Staff. We've talked about. His... <laughs> uh, we've talked about sort of his Twitter account in the show before where he only had like the two tweets, one of which was like some weird retweet about Jets news and then him clearly trying to log into the Washington Post site, but on (laughs) Twitter by accident. But like, he's such a natural, he has to have had a burner for the last like five years. this was his burner. Oh, it was his burner. Yeah, this was his burner. Interesting. Which just was Stephen A. Cohen too, because why would you think that Stephen A. I mean, Cohen too is actually the famous rich Stephen? Yeah, he's Cullen. hiding, yeah, yeah. In, hiding in plain sight. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. respect that too, because all the other burners that like usually Ashley Feinberg has unearthed over the last few years have like these like uh, just like if you were to what try was to the make Mueller up... one, it was like Pierre something or yeah, or no, the... no, that was Mitt Romney. That was Mitt Romney, Pierre, okay. Pierre Delecto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like they all read like things that you would make up as a joke. Like, what if Mitt Romney had? What would he call it? And like, Pierre Delecto is a little bit funnier than anything that we would probably come up with. But yeah. like, it's in the same lane. Ditto J- for fucking James Comey's one being Reinhold like, Niebuhr. Yeah, being like Publius. Yeah, like all just whatever the, the the most pretentious possible outcome could be. That's obviously what it would be. So just like I, I mean, the beats are already annoyed that he just keeps like tweeting out news, especially Andy Martino. I think. Yeah. But... Martino was working on that story and he just he, tweeted it out. He dunked pretty good on Andy yeah. Martino. Yeah, that was that. somebody pointed out that he's like officially blooded into Mets Twitter now. That was rich because, yeah. <laughs> because he stunted on Martino in a post. Like I, I wonder how long this can actually work. Like it's way more aggressive posters mentality than Alderson. Yeah, it's, although the kind of humor is similar. Yeah, and there's definitely it like in that sense, like the clock is certainly ticking. On right, it, it feels like because it's. Why do you guys think that? Because this guy's this guy seems to just not give a shit. 
But it's the same way with like with Keith. There, there's always that feeling that he's gonna like finally do like a oh, MAGA Keith today had post- Keith today had some Donald Trump Jr. has Corona tweets. So yeah. <laughs> don't oh, look no. at those. Well, it's, I'm assuming it's mostly like uh, it's terrible to see other people. Yeah, basically. Wh- yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry, man. Sorry that that's what offends you. <laughs> like we've all got the things that uh, I mean. It's amazing he's made it this long. So yeah, the but. Yeah, that's, like, the way that it was. I mean, like, because you know that that's, like, how he is, mm-hmm. sadly. And, like, but, you know, it's like a knife edge every day. You know, like, every Haji tweet you get, you're like, oh, <laughs> nice. Like, he avoided it for one more post. Yeah. <laughs> Don't look at St- what account Steve Cohen is following. Oh, I'm sure. Just, yeah. There's there's one American news network in there. Really? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, I, you know he's a Trump guy, but... This is, like, the thing... I guess it all ends up in the same place, like, four years of rationalizing it. Just because this guy's, like, obviously smart and, like, wears the sort of, like, private equity costume. You're, like... You know what? He codes differently than, like, the dude wearing the, like, Long, the Long Island t-shirt. Voter Parade. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yet, like, they vote the same way. So, like, yeah. that's a distinction without a difference, right? Right. Um, yeah, he, he Although follows... We, his wife did donate to... Uh, pete Buttigieg's campaign so now is he the only person on twitter is steve cohen the only person on twitter that follows both one american news network and both sean king and joanne reed (laughs) so he just he just loves poison is what you're saying (laughs) dave portnoy there's there's a lot oh my god (laughs) alan dershowitz dersh Jared pointed this, this out, of, out of the pod a few weeks ago, but at, at, a certain point, at a certain point, you just have so much money, like politics, like actual political ideology, like having a coherent one just doesn't matter to you. Yeah. Like, well, that's for like for people that need to try to sort out how to like be in the world. But like Stephen Cohen, like always has the option of just like getting into a big boat and living on it. This was like when I was 12, my father got a subscription to the National Review because he wanted to hear both sides. Like, <laughs> but the best follow on here, which I guarantee you is a troll because it just feels like a troll. Steve Cohen follows A-Rod. <laughs> I mean, see, I can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they probably know each other. I wonder, I guess that, like, that's another thing, too, in terms of, like, extreme rich guy mentalities. Mm-hmm. The way that, like, A-Rod and J-Lo were, like, astroturfing that anti-Cohen campaign online, yeah. which I was, like, fascinated by. It, there wasn't really enough there to I write kept, about. I but kept it was... getting promoted tweets from a PR flag for, Same. Like, weeks about that. Same, dude. Right up until they finalized the uh, the actual sale. Yeah. They were still pushing it. And it was... It wasn't really very, like, sophisticated as those sorts of campaigns go either. That it was, like, like the post would just, like, come from people that worked for the political comms shop that they hired to do that. Like, it would be, like, the proprietress of some, like, messaging firm. My favorite thing that I found researching the J-Lo A-Rod campaign, because I had forgotten that this had happened, because 2020 lasted 29 years. Yeah. Right as coronavirus restrictions were starting in New York, they had a dinner with Bill de Blasio at the mayoral residence to try and sway him along to their cause, so to speak. And they took some of the most ridiculous selfies you've ever seen in your life. Again, right as coronavirus is starting to spread through New York City... 
There's just pictures online of, like, A-Rod taking stupid selfies with Bill de Blasio. Is this children. before or after de Blasio said <laughs> everyone should go out to eat? I think it was, like, right yeah. around the same time. Yeah. And, and, like, I had just completely forgotten that this had happened. Like, I remembered the Al Sharpton stuff, and I remembered de Blasio pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, and I remembered Jessica Ramos. If I didn't remember at the beginning when they were originally trying to get de Blasio on their side, I did not remember the photo ops right as coronavirus was kicking into gear at Gracie yeah. Mansion. It's one of those things where, like, obviously it's outrageous, like, on its merits, and yet, like, it's just so hard to compete these days, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, on that on that particular terrain. Like, what, is it really, like, bad enough that it would stick in your memory, given, like, what happened in the next week? Right. Like, it, it got immediately blown out of the water when he shut down the city, but made sure to hold everything off to get one more gym workout in at the, what a at guy. the Park Slope Y. But the, uh, it's all coming back around because Mets opening day against the Nats next year will be broadcast on ESPN. So. Yeah, will it? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say when, but yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> sure. I feel like if the NBA is just going to truck ahead, that uh, yeah. by I April, mean, MLB is not going to... I worry about... Well, I mean, I worry about everything. Uh, but <laughs> where where will be, like, what Arizona and Florida might be like come spring training time? Mm. A little uh, worrying to think about. But one never knows. Maybe we'll have it all sorted out by then. Hey, WWE is taking up residence at Tropicana Field. They Really? Yeah. They're... I know that they were. I thought they were in. Oh, AEW's in Jacksonville, right? Yeah, AEW's yeah. in Jacksonville. WWE was. Why do using... I know this? It's at the Magic's Arena, the right? The Magic's Arena. Which they can't use anymore they because they're going to start playing it. games there. Yeah. So they were looking for a Central Florida large complex where they could set up the ridiculous video wall. And I guess for some reason they had to pick the drop. Because wow. I can't imagine anybody willingly ever picking the trap. I'm yeah. glared at. Oh, there's a milk finger coming <laughs> at me. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine everybody... Like, people wanting to go to the trap is just... It's like, it's like, the, like stuff like that doesn't work in baseball stadiums. This is a funny story. So a, a friend of mine who's a really good bowler made the USBC Masters final. I mean, he won it in, like, 98, but he made it again, like, in the early 2000s. And they had, like, the final TV show, like, at Milwaukee Stadium. Like, they put lanes on the middle in of the, the... Like, on the infield? On the infield, yeah. <laughs> so the only problem is uh, they, had, they had them uh, come out, like, of the dugouts onto the lanes and like, the intros. But they were all wearing bowling shoes, so he got, like, infield dirt on his shoe and, like, couldn't slide properly Oh man! <laughs> for his first match, yeah. I would, it's like when they do the NCAA tournament in, in like, whatever, a giant... Like, like the in Georgia NFL Dome stadium or whatever, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. and, like, it's the elevated floor and all of it. You're just like, this is so much harder, it's so much worse for everyone there, and it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like, there has to... Surely there is a better way than, like, making a guy who's a bowler in bowling shoes... <laughs> Walk out of the dugout like he's like he's Brady Clark or whatever era appropriate brewer would have been doing that at the time. Well, WWE having the Royal Rumble in an empty Rays stadium, it'll at least feel right that it's in the empty Rays stadium as yeah. opposed to an empty stadium that is occasionally actually filled. Mess. I, I just like I can't. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I asked that a lot now. Just like, why are things happening? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, a lot of it, I think, at this point is just 
it feels like a perverse reaction to the prospect of them not happening that it's just like at this point everyone's so sick of taking L's that they're just like steering into the the skid somehow and that is a great way to hurt a lot of people but I do feel like there's not like I mean there's not been an easy to discern through line through any of the you know I guess you'd use the word strategy uh, to you know in terms of how this has been managed but at this point it seems clearly like chaotic like there isn't a a plan or a structure of any kind it's just insane you know we all live in you know, well, one of us each lives in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And, you know, those states for the, I would say, from the late spring through about August or early September, were being really cautious and really holding back on reintroducing activities. And then right around Labor Day, just went, fuck it, everything's open. And now as cases are spiking to... 10 times what they were at a period in July when they thought they couldn't reopen or refusing to shut stuff down, except for Bill de Blasio shutting the schools down, which is probably the last thing that should be cut, shut down, not the first. And it's just like, it doesn't... Like, we know indoor dining and bars are a really bad idea. We know gyms are a really bad idea. But you're shutting down schools before them. Like, that yeah. just it doesn't... It feels like there's, and this is obviously starts at the very top of the federal government, but there's just a lack of any sort of leadership on any of this stuff, and everybody's left to be in a free-for-all and decide for themselves how they want to proceed. Yeah, I mean, is, that but, it sucks isn't surprising to me. The absolute, like, the unwillingness to even have a plan yeah. is fascinating to me. Have you, uh, now, 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 David. Have you read Andrew Cuomo's book? Because I have. That's true. I, to be fair, I have not yet read American Crisis: Leadership Lessons in. Blah, 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 blah. What's great about that book is that he probably started writing it when like twenty five hundred New Yorkers a day were dying. <laughs> yeah. Or so, however, maybe it was like a thousand a day. Whatever. I am very shocked that you think he actually wrote that book. Well, whatever. Like he signed the deal on it. Like while the, while. Like, people are dying, and things are completely out of control, and the city's awash in sirens. They just have, like, oil tankers converted into morgues in Central Park or whatever. So, like, while that's happening, he or somebody that works for him is on the phone with, like, an agent or a publishing house and being like, so you probably know what's going on here in New York. Uh, The governor would like to write about how good a job he's doing right now. (laughs) Can you have this out in time for the second spike? (laughs) Remember that brief period, I want to say, like, late April, early May, where a bunch of people were just absolutely convinced that the Democratic Party was going to replace Joe Biden as the presidential nominee with Andrew Cuomo? Yeah, yeah. that was a tough moment. <laughs> it's, uh. it's been a series of really bad ideas in Democratic politics this year, of yeah. which there were immutable. This year. Start, <laughs> right. Starting with the Iowa caucus not being able to declare a winner. Remember, that was also this year, and mm-hmm. ending, well, it really actually hasn't ended yet, but Andrew Cuomo briefly was floated to be made by Fiat, the presidential nominee. So I had the experience, I almost never mute replies to posts on Twitter, because I'm a fucking man, <laughs> and I can take it, uh, but I did mute one earlier, because I, I said something stupid about Cuomo, whatever it was, you know, like, it's a thing that you do, and... I got, like, actual Cuomo stands who I think I knew were out there. 
but it was like women in the Midwest <laughs> or in California who were like like riding for him, like showing up, like and, you know, being like, well, first of all, he's like he's better than Trump, and I was like, well, this is a that seems like an awfully low standard. Also, and you know, in some cases, they were like, we like watching him. He's got a heart. Like, he's got a brain, you know, like, unlike Trump, whatever. And I don't know if they were, like, assuming that I was a Trump guy. I, you know, like, again, I muted it. I, at some point, I sort of stopped, you know, uh, noticing it or wanting to think about it. But the idea that he could develop, a na- not like, a national following from those TV things just by, like, by continuing to act like himself. It wasn't like he was, like, cool on TV or anything. Like, he was still a fucking maniac. But, like, man, it's disheartening. Just, like, screaming at the Wall Street Journal reporter for asking a question based on his reporting, (laughs) which literally bore out during the press conference. Yeah. Like, I just... It's all about tone for him. Like, he just can't... I think for that, like, it was that the guy asked, like, like, a pointed question that had, like, an answer that he didn't want to give. And so, of course, he was like, first of all, you could try being a little less obnoxious. And very, like, Rob Manfred answering questions about the juice ball energy. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, the same sort of, like, thing where it's, like, because of how, like, peremptory and, like, prissy he's being, it, like, you're like, all right, well, this is actually somehow even worse than I suspected. Like, not I, in a way that we'll ever get out of him, but... Just the idea... I'm a little young for, like, the heyday of Mario Cuomo, but, like, I'm not too young to not, like, understand it, and you guys are probably in roughly the same boat. But, like, Mario Cuomo was actually cool, and his sons are just, like, the biggest turds on the planet. Yeah, I gather that he was a a very difficult man, like, kind of like a tyrant uh, in the household. But, like, in, in the way that you'd think. Like, he was just super driven, worked all the all the time, and had extremely high expectations. And his kids are just, like, fucking knobs. Like, they're goofballs. Right. Like, Chris is by far the more appealing of the two, and he's not an appealing presence. Right. He's, like, a vague anti-vaxxer. Like. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, dumbasses. Like, right. like Westchester dumbass. Right. It's like, the, it's like your father was governor of New York. You grew up extremely rich like you guys are just pulling off like the fakest like the worst actually isn't even them it's the pretend Andrew Cuomo's like Max Rose yeah yeah because now there's people pretending to be Andrew Cuomo and that's somehow even worse than Andrew Cuomo but like you just like fucking knock the stick off it's such a look there's there's no political cost to like yelling about Bill de Blasio in New York basically so it really I mean to be fair, like that was the most compelling uh, pitch for re-election that Max Rose was capable of. <laughs> it was just all the stories about him at the end, like, like he he couldn't really run on his accomplishments. Like he won election by being like the person that I'm running against, like takes money from the manufacturer of the pharmaceuticals that are killing people in right. this district. And everybody was like, oh, well, that sounds bad. Maybe I'll vote for you instead. And then the stuff that he did to get re-election, because all you know, he cast a bunch of bad votes, didn't matter. And then he would, yeah, he did push-ups apparently a lot on camera, and then also like yelled about De Blasio again and like the Staten Knicks. Island energy. So yes, and now he's going to run for mayor. Yeah, good luck to him. Looking I, forward I was... to him versus Andrew Yang in the primary. <laughs> so I was not aware of this, but apparently the Democratic primary for New York mayor has switched to ranked choice voting, so there's much less of a chance that like a complete dolt is going to get through. Unlike. 
a weird clown car plurality, like, say, Bill de Blasio did. <laughs> yeah. So that, that hurts Max Rose's chances, I yeah. think. I'm really interested in seeing what's next for him. Yeah. Uh, he's just, he's going to be one of these guys, like Mayor Pete, that's just going to be around forever for no discernible reason. Yeah. I mean, he's like, lives near TV studios. Right. Like, once mm-hmm. people start doing that again. He's a troop. He's a yep. troop. He curses. Yeah, he's right. real. He has, like, opinions on the Knicks. Maybe he ends up the head of Veterans Affairs now. Oh, God. Oh, gosh. I, I mean, mean, that's the thing with Buttigieg, too, though. Like, that's a really hard job, and you're going to get blamed for a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's no surprise that Pete's like, no, I was thinking of something more, like, permanent going-on-TV guy. You had ambassador. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how. Oh, Mayor Pete. <sighs> the, the Mayor Pete dance was the same day that coronavirus was discovered, which I discovered recently because it was the one-year anniversary of both on the same day. Really? Yes. November 17th. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. I, of yeah. course, remember the day that the Mayor Pete dance uh, I didn't really... <laughs> Tell me more about this coronavirus. It sounds good. <laughs> and I... Like, Mayor <laughs> Pete was this year. It's yeah. that, ridiculous. That, that happened this It's been a year, year. Jarrett. I... This really is the longest year in human history, and it's mm. not actually over yet. No. It's incredible it's how exhausting it has actually been. Like, right. I, and, I, I, I missed a great party, the, I, the, apparently, the day that the election was actually called, like a couple Saturdays ago. And Kate and I were upstate. Um, we just like we had rented a car, and we were staying in Kingston and sort of driving around that, that part of the Hudson Valley. It was really nice. But... We were at we were at the green market in Kingston, whereas we would have been at the green market here in Manhattan if we'd been here. Because uh, we still just do the same things wherever we are, which is like buy apples compulsively. Uh, and it was like people were cheering and like clapping and stuff like that, but it was kind of muted. And I like I felt good. I also still felt kind of like wary because I know that you know obviously we're a long way from anything being fixed. But I was struck by, like, mostly just, like, how tired I felt. Like, I was, like, I I mean, I would love to be able to feel, um, you know, excitement about, it doesn't need to be politics. I think that's asking a lot. $700,000 for Sam McWilliams doesn't get you excited, David. I mean, it's getting there, honestly, because that's, like, something that I could have in my mind instead of uh, thinking about, like, civilizational decline <laughs> tell me about the mcwilliams all i know about him is that he's tall and his and doesn't seem to strike people out very much uh but is also apparently the consensus like best minor league free agent pitcher there was yeah so the velocity popped uh the alternate site for the rays this year it's like a thinker slider changeup guy um, has sort of bounced between starting and relieving in his last year in actual Baseball games in 2019. But yeah, he's like, a, he's like a tall drink of water. He has options, which I know the Mets don't like having good relievers with options. Yeah. You get one or the other. Right. Uh, so maybe I'm not already. So he wasn't on the Rays 40-man roster, right? Uh, he was a no. minor league free agent, so they would have had to add him oh, okay. right after the season. Ended. He was a Rule 5 pick a couple of years ago. That's what that I was going to say. Turned. Like, couldn't... Couldn't they, the Mets have taken him in the Rule 5 draft? Or was it no, they didn't want to take No, because he declared minor league free agency before the Rule 5 draft happened. Okay. So, yeah. The uh, 
The Rays could have added him to the 40, which would have stopped him from declaring minor league free agency. Josh Smoker a few years ago was in that situation, and the Mets added him to the 40. But the Rays' 40-man roster is crunched, so they were unable the to. The Mets is not, David. No, yes. it's not. There's still a bunch of open Mets, spots. I'm gonna, there, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some names that are current. So the Mets, hell I, yeah, the, the Mets 40 man roster is at 38 right now. Mm-hmm. We did look this up uh, off air before we started recording because I was wondering. But despite being at 38 or 37 or whatever it was, um, there's some names here. Uh, Ariel Girado still on the Mets 40 man roster. That's terrific. That's good. Uh, you gotta hold. <laughs> Jesus, this Corey, is gonna be all the things that like. Corey the Oswalt they left still in the on the Mets 40-man roster. Ended. Who Wait, say again. Corey Oswalt still on the Mets 40-man oh. roster. Do you remember they uh, claimed Nick Tropeano? No. Yeah, they claimed uh, Nick Tropeano. Cool. I don't uh, mind that. I mean, I don't think he's very good, but like that's the sort of thing they do, right? Pat Mazeka still on the 40-man roster. <laughs> oh, nice. The fifth catcher. Yeah. Uh, they claimed Robel Garcia. I like that one too. That's the that's actually a good move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what he can do, but that's like, I guess he can hit. So that's a maybe step in the right direction. Uh, Guillermo Heredia. <laughs> oh no! This is like all the dudes that Guillermo Heredia, After who I... is a uh, according to MLB trade rumors, an estimated one point three million dollar tender for next year because <laughs> he is arbitration eligible. This is like the. I mean, everything that I kind of like tapped out on the season um, in August. Like, it just felt like the right thing to do. And so, like, a lot of these things, like, I remember coming back from vacation and seeing people talking about Heredia in the Mets DM and legit not knowing who they were talking about. Like, mm-hmm. I think I asked if they were talking about Felix, like, if they were going back and <laughs> remembering guys. No, I guess it's good that Guillermo Heredia got to be a Met. That sounds nice for him. Did they call him up at some point? Yeah, he was up. All right, that's right. Yeah, he got a couple of bats. That's I, right. If I recall correctly, there was like a week where they hard platoon Brandon. That's Nimo right. Yeah, no that's a thing that happens. Mm, yeah. Because yeah. that's a thing you definitely want to do. Uh, Tropiano was really good with the Pirates. He was, series. yes. In seven games, but. Yeah. Uh, you know, he might be a guy where there's actually something there. He also has options. He has one option year left. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, like. Unlike from, these guys, they Island. usually... And Mick Williams falls into this category broadly, too. But unlike the guys they usually target for this... Um, who is the... Like the Neil Ramirez types? Yep. Um, it's a fairly recent starting pitching convert. So that's usually, I think, a positive marker in some ways. Or at least you might think there's a little more in the tank. Or it might be a little more real. Yeah. Even though it's a shorter sample of major league performance had the sense that the Mets the the guys that they seemed to target it seemed like the whole idea was that they were fungible that that was like the number one thing they were looking for where they were like oh Chris Beck that's really easy to get oh god let's get Chris Beck they have Brooks Pounders Pounders. (laughs) he's not still on the floor no he's not still on the floor yeah all right um but yeah I know like and the Mets like Tropiano was a decent starting pitching prospect and the Mets who again added zero players to their 40-man roster to protect them from Rule 5 because they so didn't need none, to add any. Like, they don't have the, those. Like, Tony DeBrell should have been that guy, but has never really been that guy. Who are the guys that, that would they would have had to... I'm just trying to think back on, like... Uh, Will the, Toffee, who you might remember from oh, the J.R. Smilia trade. Guy. Yeah. Um, like, Desmond Lindsay, is he old enough to he be is Desmond eligible Lindsay, yet? yes. Desmond Lindsay apparently was not even protected for the AAA phase, so... Oh, boy. Anybody can have him for $25,000 uh, with no right of return. 
Zaisana Costa and Shervin Newton for the second year. Uh, wow. Harold Gonzalez and Luis Carpio for the second year. Uh, I mean, Carpio was like a six-figure uh, bonus guy that played in AA, and I think I called up to the alternate site towards the end of last season. It's a, definitely a name that I have seen uh, in Mets scouting, you know, like at the yeah, I mean, others he, I, receiving votes <laughs> portion of the prospects. Yes. I liked him in Kingsport. He then had the same uh, labrum tear that lots of Mets prospects that worked out at their Barwis facility in Fort St. Lucie happened to get. They need to they're still investigating uh, how that could have happened. Mm. I'm sure that we'll get that sorted out. Well, we have an expert on football strength and conditioning programs on this podcast. Jared, are labrum tears uh, common in that kind of uh, environment? Yeah. yeah. That, that, is, that tends to be when you lift weights that are too heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what you want out of your strength and conditioning program, making guys lift weights that are too heavy. That's yeah. how you get strong. Uh. <laughs> oh, I... Barvis is one of the things I'm going to actually miss, because every year I would just get a dump of ridiculous Barvis-related things that happened uh, from one of my friends, and I'm, I'm going to miss that. Yeah. Like, I really am. Well, maybe they'll stay working with him now that because uh, he does such a good job. That's not going to happen. I know, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not going I don't know if he's already been kicked out or not, but I would, I would. I mean, I would have made kicking him out of Port St. Lucie a priority over kicking McKellar out of City Field. So, well, McKellar was a late Wilpon era. Yes, I know. So, did they really? They're putting in a brewery that has absolutely no ties to the Wilpons, David. None. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, it is amazing. McKellar is like really good. It was yeah, a nice super spot good. too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I remember very fondly the um, the live when was it live? I don't know. Whatever. We I was there with you and a bunch of other listener weirdos mm-hmm. before a game like last summer. I thought that was excellent. Yeah, it's a really nice time. Yeah, like they had okay food. The beer was not exorbitantly expensive for, and it was like the highest quality beer that you could consume at a sporting right. event. Uh, so, by... so the rumor is the brewery that's going in there is called Ebbs. Which yes. is short for what you think it is. Oh, like, oh, enough uh, with that shit. It, it appeared in June, a couple of months before they kicked out uh, McKellar. And the, it, oh, this is from their, uh, this is from a website yeah. called I know Where's the Beer in New York. Yes. The team, including co-founders Thomas Larson and Bruce Wilpon. <laughs> Bruce! How many others are there? Bruce is Jeff's brother. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, he is involved in the finance business, but not the baseball business. He was one of the relatives who was not um, enamored with the idea of having the entire family fortune invested in Jeff's baseball plaything as the past generation. So many haters. However, there's, had... there, there's a Wilponian tone to even this. The beer itself is unapologetically simple, says Larson. We're pretty much <laughs> stuck on the idea of not getting caught up in the craft beer arms race of punny beer names and off-the-wall ingredient lists. Yeah. Um, born in Brooklyn, brewed for the people. Is the... off. <laughs> Come on. Beer has... Here's, here's on the, their website. Mm. Uh, 
beer has also turned into an arms race where the wackiest labels, the punniest names, and the most extreme flavor combinations rise to the top. We think that's really fucking boring. Here's the beer that tastes like beer. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, hell this yeah. This is like in, like, it was like Budweiser was doing ads like yes. this. Yeah. About beers that like actually Imbev also owned. But, yeah. yeah. Look, you look a peach IPA or you drinking a freaking no, Bud is, like an American. This is their beers list. It mm, starts great. with, these are our beers. They are what they are with names to match. Only a style and recipe numbers. Let's go through these. They are what they are with names to match. Miguel Cairo on a two-year <laughs> IPA number one. Modern, juicy, and floral. IPA number two. Classic, piney, dank. IPA number three. Modern, soft, luscious. Now we start skipping numbers because it we seems skip- like they're they're denying themselves some like the fun part of making these. You still have to use the words, but like come up with some name. <laughs> we, we, we now move from three to IPA five. Modern, bright, fruity. Now we go to IPA number seven. Modern, tropical, pillowy. And then we have lager number one. Clean, crisp, and floral. Lager number two, balanced, refreshing, and sessionable. Goes number one, tart, salty, and refreshing. And stout number one, rich, silky, and This sounds absolutely yeah, awful, by yeah. the way. <laughs> None of this sounds good. No, I mean, like, I'm sure that, like, I, I mean, I We're not like your other microbreweries. Also, here's seven IPAs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, I mean, if you're going to be a baseball-affiliated brewery, and you're going to make a goes, and you're going to deny yourself the opportunity to call it Anthony goes, you're Mm. blowing it. Same day delivery in New York City. David, you can get IPA number seven. I feel like I've maybe seen Ebbs on a menu somewhere. Yeah, some people on Amazing Avenue Slack have had it and said it's, like, perfectly fine. Yeah, but is, is there something frustrating about... The idea of like you know bringing it all in house and like having it be yeah, like but Keller actually I think adapted very well to like being in a baseball stadium. Yeah, like they leaned into it in a in a nice way. Yeah, like their food selections were like vaguely baseball. Yeah, yeah like, I remember like a large pretzel, elevated yeah. chili dogs and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just I can't believe that like on the way out these people. <laughs> I and mean, I you can't. I should be able to believe it, both based on their 17 years of owning the team and also what's happening right now in Washington, D.C. But they actually cared enough to kick out the brewery in City Field that everybody really loved so they could replace it with this generic-ass bullshit that family never owned. That mm. The whole point of which is that, like, we're not here to have fun. <laughs> we're yeah. not, like, other breweries like to joke around and enjoy their beer. That's yeah. not us. Like, here at Ebbs, like, we're going to give you a generically named beer with generic attributes. The, the other two things that Ebbs slash Fountain Beverages produces, according to their press release, are hard seltzer and CBD-infused sparkling water. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so Bruce Wilpon is like that one uh, Coke brother that, uh, like, makes yeah. the weird floral suits, basically. <laughs> yes, he's, like, he's a Wyatt Ingram Coke. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce Wolpon, by the way, looks exactly what you think he looks like. Like Jeff with, like, a better haircut and less of a scowl. Mm. 
looking them up. Not a lot less of a scale, slightly less of a scale. It's all the CBD infused seltzer water. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he has a political science degree from Brown. Yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, he still doesn't look... None of these guys look happy. I think this is the thing that... I feel like this was a million years ago that we talked about this, but the with the Cubs, when I was writing about the Ricketts for the Baffler... Um, what was either that was either 10 months or like <laughs> seriously 2017 i don't remember anymore <laughs> but like the stuff that i kept coming back to there was like they're all like bored and upset and constantly at each other's throats all the time I mean, they get Pete, nothing Pete out of got like a waitress team. fired for <laughs> taking a picture of him without a mask on at a restaurant yeah i do briefly want to discuss bruce wilpon's love life because <sighs> it's actually no it's actually interesting right. it's mets adjacent it counts yeah, it is yes. adjacent. you have to let it's him fine. do it he married the daughter of a japanese billionaire his wife left him for a close friend of Prince Harry. Oh, no! <laughs> Nikki Scott, close friend of Prince Harry. <sighs> so he's sing- he's back on the market now? I assume... I, um, I don't know, um, but... Uh, You'd hate to think that he was starting a, like a joyless and surly craft brewing concern as a way of coping with the... Mm. Stress of divorce. Oh my god! Oh my god! I didn't notice a nice they British co-wrote... EBS on that. No, no, list. <laughs> no, 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 no. When they were married, they moved to London and co-wrote an article in the Guardian about their love life. Oh, about their love life? <laughs> yes, Yuki. I went to Tokyo University. Japanese men are told the girls there do not make good wives. They're too strong. They're too educated. So I never thought I'd get married. When I'd meet people, I'd never say who my father was. If boys asked what he did, I'd say he was in the mafia. (laughs) (laughs) Bruce, I had it worse being the son of a baseball team owner. When I was young... I mean, in a way, yes. (laughs) That specific baseball team owner. (laughs) There were times when someone who wanted to go to a concert at Chase Stadium would become my friend just before the concert. I wouldn't see them at the concert. They weren't really my friend afterwards. Having self-made entrepreneurs for parents means it has been difficult to be judged on my own merits. I met Yuki at a dinner for 30 Japanese businessmen. This gets so much worse. This is like a New York Yuki Times at an eyes wide shut event. <laughs> my my father wanted to show off his Japanese speaking son. I sat next to her and was thunderstruck. She was supposed to marry an ethnic Korean man, and I was supposed to marry a Jewish woman from New York or Long Island, so we had to be secretive. One night, her mother stuck out to a restaurant to meet me. I was nervous, and I didn't want to offend her. I wanted her to show her this wasn't a fleeting feeling. She went to work on my father-in-law. It's pure conjecture how she did it, but I know she has a lot of say in those quiet moments. <laughs> That's it. Oh, my God. What's the... the uh... The audience for this story? Like, who's the editor that assigned it? <laughs> it's there's the Guardian, one, David. There's one other thing. Yuki, when I went to Yale, my father said, don't you dare come back and say you're going to marry a white guy. I said to him, I can't promise that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You never know which uh, son of a widely reviled local <laughs> baseball dynasty might sweep me off my feet. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just, I can't. And yet, this is like so. First of all, it's cool that the Wilpons have a Hunter Biden in the family. Mm. Like vibe wise, if not with the problems, it's yeah, definitely yeah. there. I just I feel like at the same time, uh, this being the coolest Wilpon is a the ultimate in damning with faint praise. 
Him speaking Japanese, though, you got to respect that. I just love the idea that he that Fred Wilpon brought his son to a dinner with Japanese businessmen to say, "My white kid knows Japanese," and yeah. that's how Bruce Wilpon went his, met his wife. To me, that's the single most believable detail in the whole story. <laughs> Who left him for a close friend of Prince? <laughs> well, that's a that's tough. But the idea of Fred being like, "You got Brucey, you got to join me. It's going to be all Japanese people, and I don't know how to speak Japanese. <laughs> Maybe you meet a nice girl. Would that be so bad?" <sighs> oh, God. <laughs> Fred's asking Bruce to translate for like just some scandalized businessman about how like in these days nobody goes six innings anymore. <laughs> oh. <laughs> She was also apparently at one point the fashion editor at Harper's Bazaar. Oh my god. <laughs> this wow. is, there's a lot going on here. There's so here. much, too much. There's, there's a lot going on here. I am sad that you won't be able to get McKellar beers at City Field. I'm also sad that I probably won't be at City Field, or none of us will be until like 2022 or whatever, but uh, that's still a drag. I, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and we were both. I, I don't. I'm like kind of optimistic things might be okay by April or May. Like it does actually seem like there's a vaccine coming that'll yeah. work, and you know, I I have concerns about the ability to implement. Uh, the, I it just it doesn't seem like there's the capacity for the state to do like a good rollout on that. I would the state like capital S state like just in yeah. general. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, it seems like that's, that's certainly possible. It's a question of when you're going to feel comfortable doing stuff again. I'd sure feel comfortable going to a, a Mets game, especially, like, a not especially well-attended, you know, like, the, a Dave Roth special, like some, like, shitty Thursday afternoon game. Like, I'd feel better doing that than I would, you know, drinking a beer inside a bar. Yeah. A nice old uh, getaway day, Pirates against the Mets. Um Fuck, who still even pitches for the Pirates? They keep non tendering people. J- JT Brubaker against David Peterson. <laughs> I think the, uh, yeah, that. Guillermo Heredia I, starting in center because it's getaway day. Yeah. It's like, we got your Sunday lineup mm. on a Thursday. <laughs> the, uh, I've had uh, this tradition with some friends of, like, who are Pirates fans of, like, I go to a Mets Pirates game every year. It's, like, the one game that I'm guaranteed to go to. And, yeah, there's always plenty of good seats available mm. for that one. David Peterson gets left in too long to face Brian Hayes a third time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the last two times I've been to a Mets Pirates game, uh, Seawald got lit up. Mm. Is he still on, he's not on the 40-man No, he's roster. still on the 40-man he, roster, David. Do you want to guess how old yet? Paul Seawald is? Uh, okay, I think I just broke it. Yeah, go ahead. 31? Uh, he will be 31 in May. Good. Good for him. That's uh. a great age. Such a fun age. How is he still on the forty man roster? I mean, he's been on and off it. Yeah, well, you... you know what Paul Seawald's line for the Mets this year was? Like, guess, uh, guess. We'll leave you with this, David. Uh, guess how many innings, strikeouts, and ERA for Paul Seawald with the twenty twenty Mets? So this is. I feel like it could be a very small or a startlingly large <laughs> amount. And again, I should be clear that I don't that I I did sort of tap out on the team. Let's say that he threw twenty five. No, that would be a lot of appearances. Uh, Seventeen innings and uh, struck out 
again, this could be the sort of thing where he had a lot of strikeouts but also gave up a ton of homers, or it could be the sort of thing where he totally lost it and had, like, six walks and five strikeouts. Let's say um, 11 strikeouts, Mm -hmm. and his ERA was 6.8. He pitched six innings. Okay. Two strikeouts. Good. Four walks. So you did have the Mm -hmm. strikeout-to-walk ratio pretty good. Uh, 13.5 ERA. Oh, boy, that's too high. (laughs) You gotta, you gotta bring that shit down. Uh, I how many innings too, would you but... guess he has thrown in his Mets career? Too many. One hundred twenty. One hundred forty-seven. Like That's so much. He struck out one hundred and fifty-one batters. I he had his moments. Like of mm. all the guys that we've ever talked about, him and Drew Smith are the only guys that I've seen and been like, oh, okay. Like I kind of see that. And in, uh, in two thousand nineteen, he struck out twenty-two and walked three in nineteen and two-thirds innings. Still pitched to a four point five eight ERA. Yeah. I mean, it's weird that they would keep him on the 40-man, if only just because, like, it's clear that they are not going to give him a shot. Well, this is one like, of those things where you don't cut the guy until you need the spot, basically. I guess. I don't know. I mean, to me, like, I'm not going to steer us into a Rule 5 draft thing at the very end of <laughs> weird my appearance. Weird that, that David, first like, Yeah, but there are, like, that's part of what you keep, I guess, some of those roster spots open for in case, like, but, you know, Ariel Gerardo or Paul Seawald or whatever, like, You'd rather have the Rule 5 guy make the team than those guys, right? Probably. Is there anybody that you want them to get, not to give anything away? Uh, I said Garrett Whitlock in the first He's the guy that everybody seems to... He's like the consensus best pitcher in it. Him or Brett DeGuss, probably? Yeah, I said Brett DeGuss, who's a Dodgers relief prospect and a very... I know very little about either of them, but I'll have to listen to the first segment of the podcast Mm -hmm. to learn more. Yeah. Well, we now move on to the third segment of the podcast and say goodbye to our good friend from Defector, David Roth. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Welcome back. Now it's time for the third half of the show. Before we do the third half of the show, we do housekeeping. This is for all you kids out there. Episode 253. For all you kids out there, is a Mets-adjacent Baseball Prospectus podcast. You can find us on the internet at BaseballProspectus.com. The podcast is on iTunes. Just search for For All You Kids Out There, and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. If you want to get in contact with the show, we're on Twitter at For All You Kids. Jared's on Twitter at J.A. Seidler. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Pederastro. The Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash For All You Kids Out There. And you can email the show at allyoukids at baseballprospectus.com. Before we get into the correspondence this week, while noting that it was not a heavy Mets news week in both the first and second half sections, we did forget to mention that Mike Chernoff has foregone interviewing with the Mets. So he is also out as a president of baseball operations candidate. Sounds like Forrest is also heading in that direction. Yeah, although not officially. Sounds like Neander is heading in that direction, although, again, both not, of those are not. Not officially, but I don't know if they've yeah. asked, specifically asked for permission either, which, Jared, you do start to wonder, um, how good a job is this? I think it's a very good job. I yes, think, I agree. You know, you've got some candidates that are under contract. Well, most of them are under contract, but a lot of them don't have out to take another job they're going after a lot of people for whom this wouldn't really be a promotion i mean i would 
And it got people with like family stuff and sure. you know, it's, I would also suggest that there's actually this... a deadly pandemic going yeah. on. And, yeah. I would also say for this class of GM or baseball executive, it's a lot easier to be Thad Levine than it is to be Brian Cashman. Yeah. So, you know, I I don't know precisely where this is going. Uh, there has been the suggestion all along that if Alderson does not find the candidate he wants, he will serve as the president of baseball operations this year. Sure. Uh, he's certainly more than capable of doing so. I mean, he seems to be potentially picking a GM outside of the president of ops job search. So yeah. I this is something that I think probably has a hard stop date of like right, within yeah. the next week or two. Because I mean, at worst before the winter meetings, going. yeah. Yeah, like you do just kind of, you know, decisions have to be made on, is Luis Rojas staying? Right. Or and, you, you know, decisions are already being made on, you know, 40-man yeah. ads. You have yeah. Sam McWilliams signing. There's going to be non-tenders next week, I think. So, yeah. So you would want to get this done pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it plays out over yes. the coming weeks. I'm sure it will be pretty much the only thing rising to the level of podcast topic, though lots of things rise to the level of podcast topic. One thing that has been a uh, recurring feature on the podcast for weeks now uh, would be Francisco Lindor trade proposals. Sure. An email from Johnny Caps. Hey dudes, is the package with Rosario, JD, and a prospect realistic for Lindor? If so, what type of prospect would be needed? Would need to be included? So I think the answer is yes. Although I think it would be more of a prospect package. Right. Um, I think you're basically letting them pick whoever you want in the system at that point. If you're including Rosario and not Jimenez, yes. Yeah, I, I think you're... And I do think that there's some reasonable ability to disagree there. I wouldn't be shocked if mm. they preferred Allen or Alvarez to Mauricio. Sure. I mean, I thought you meant to agree that... I, I think Rosario is less valuable than Jimenez yeah. in the trade package for a variety of reasons. Yes, uh, control. He might just be better. He, he might just be better. Age. Mm-hmm. Rosario's already about to get expensive. Yeah. Rosario is also the type of player that's going to be more expensive in arbitration than he, quote, should be, unquote. Sure. Which is going to matter a lot to a team like Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I think you're, yeah. Would Cleveland accept Rosario, Mauricio, and J.D. Davis? I think probably. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's within the ballpark. Yeah. They won't hang up the phone, probably. Yeah. Again, it's hard to know exactly how teams are evaluating certain prospects in the absence of a season. Uh, you know, was at the alternate site for a time. Right. If you were trackman scouting the alternate site data, you're going to come to the conclusion that Matt Allen is the best prospect in the Mets system. Mm. You might be right. I think. And I think with a full minor league season, there's a very good chance that Allen would have been the best prospect in the Mets system. But I don't know how 
individual teams are rating, you know, Trackman data share and perhaps inter squad scat- video. <laughs> yeah, scattered other data versus twenty nineteen looks. And in twenty nineteen, Randy Mauricio is a much better prospect than Matt Allen. I know how we're doing it. Yeah. Very yeah. carefully. Yeah. Mauricio's gonna be Allen on the Mets list just sure. because Yeah. We again, we were talking about the Mets uh, the other day, and to me, Allen's actually kind of in a very similar bucket to Nick Bidsko in yeah. a lot of ways. But you know, both of their cases to be amongst the highest pitching prospects in baseball are functionally not from game action. Yeah, it's TrackMan data while wearing shorts. <laughs> it's not strictly speaking shorts, right, yeah, but yeah. TrackMan data from stuff other than games. In Bitsko's case, it literally was while wearing shorts. Yes. But, you know, in Allen's case, it was in simulated game action. But, and that that is certainly something that teams are getting more comfortable with and something that we're getting more comfortable with, too. I don't think two or three years ago we would have been ranking guys like that on the 101 based on that information. And this year, I think both of those guys are going to make it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the tide is turning, but I, I don't, I don't have a good enough handle on what Cleveland's player acquisition would look like to know which prospect in the system they're actually going to prefer. Right. I think you can make reasonable arguments for at least the top three and hell, maybe they're the biggest Brett Beatty fans. <laughs> on the Answer a question from Matthew, which I missed last week. So I forgot to start, but it is still relevant. Even even the last part is still relevant a week later. Uh, hi, Jeffrey and Jarrett. I have two semi-related mess questions, and then one about politics, which you can feel free to ignore. You'd rather not be into politics right now, and we never do that on the show. So, Question one. The vibe I'm getting from the beat writers is they feel as though the Mets will only sign one of George Springer and JT Realmuto. I'd imagine that they're all somewhat sourced on that. At the very least, we know Andy Martino gets a lot of info from Sandy Alderson, as you mentioned on Tuesday's podcast. It also seems like the beat writers expect the Mets to prioritize Springer over Real Muto. Please interject and correct all this if I'm wrong or you're not getting that vibe. So I would say prioritize in terms of timeline, maybe not in terms of uh, interest. So I guess if they're going to do Springer first, you would think they're more interested. Um I'll continue and come back to that. In a vacuum, that seems logical. Real Muto is entering his age 30 season as a catcher, and Springer is therefore a better bet because it's easier to deal with a center fielder whose defense has lapsed than a catcher who can't catch anymore. But the gap between Real Muto and the next best catcher option, James McCann, is large compared to the gap between Springer and the next best center field option, especially considering Jackie Bradley is a weird fit for the Mets as currently constructed. In his press conference, Steve Cohen specifically mentioned catcher as an area of need for the team didn't say anything about center field from what I can remember, which would certainly indicate to me he's got a sight set on Real Muto. Assuming the beat writers are getting the Springer over Real Muto vibes from Sandy Alderson, do you think this might be the first test of the level of independence afforded to Alderson in his front office, or is it just possible the Mets will sign both guys? I think it's very possible the Mets will sign both guys. So, to get back I don't to... Think it's, I don't think they're going to jump the market on both guys. Right. I think the, ki- I think the situation where they sign both guys probably involves signing one of them in December and one of them at the end of January. Yeah. Um, and it does sound like there's more heat on Springer at this point in time, but 
And that's not unreasonable. We've made this point repeatedly, but a lot of flavors of analytics and player risk are going to tell you not to sign a catcher to big money into his mid-30s. I mean, the Padres just traded for Austin Nola and made them their starting catcher. Um, yeah. If you're an analytically inclined front office, you might be staring down that Omar Navarez non-tender that might be coming. Yeah, you got James McCann out there. Yeah, I don't like James McCann, but... You've also got a... One of the things you're assessing here when you sign a very good framing catcher, and this came up with the Grandal contract, too, right. is that there's a real chance that the next CBA is going to involve a automatic strike zone, which is mm-hmm. going to reduce or perhaps even more likely eliminate the value of catcher framing. Now, Real Muto is a very good defensive catcher, generally right but if you eliminate catcher framing you a eliminate some of the defensive value he's bringing a great deal of the defensive value he's bringing but the offensive replacement level for catcher is going to go way up because Mm -hmm. teams are going to start catching guys that really suck back there again (laughs) you're going to see ryan dubik types start catching again yeah and i mean someone like dalton varsho might just catch every day over right. Carson Kelly because he's a better hitter. I mean, I know he isn't hitting the majors, but theoretically, that kind of teams are very, very hesitant nowadays to start like roll forty-five catchers. Yes, defensively, I mean, like roll yeah. forty-five gloves. Yes, which has uh, raised the average level for catcher framing and sort of compressed the range of catcher framing. But it's but... also depressed the range of offense, right? So the conditions that make JT Realmuto, if not a unicorn, relatively close, might not actually be the existing conditions in, say, 2023. Right. So that's something you have to model as a front office when you're considering giving JT Realmuto, you know, let's say $125 million. Right. I think that's low, but I also think all contracts this offseason are going to come in low. And if you think George Springer is an above-average defensive center fielder and is likely to continue being so for at least a couple of years... George Springer's... It's easier to model George Springer's value going forward. You might be wrong, but it's easier to model. Right. The only question you would really have with George Springer is, have the Astros been cheating in a way (laughs) that benefits him that will no longer exist when he's not there? And the answer is actually probably no. Right. I don't think it's definitely no, but I think it's probably no. Yeah. Because there's, you know, he's continued to make improvements in his batted ball structure even after the banging scheme stopped. So you would have to come up with some other explanation to that that is unique to Houston. I don't think you're actually going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and it's not like the... he was like a out of nowhere guy. He was a first round draft pick and he's basically oh, played yeah. the projection. I mean, he's better than you might have expected as a prospect, but not significantly not so and not in a shape that's unusual. Right. He had, he had high end timing. Mm-hmm. Fuck, he was connected to the Mets at the draft, too. Yeah. So it's not like. While Alderson was there. So. Yeah. Yeah, UConn kid. Um, so yeah, I 
I don't actually think it's entirely unreasonable to prefer Springer to Real Muto. I would not prefer Springer to Real Muto. And I do think it's unreasonable to prefer either of them to Francisco Lindor. Mm-hmm. Just as players, obviously, there's a difference when the acquisition cost is just the money. Right. But, you know... You, I mean, I would not be upset if all they did this offseason was sign JT Real Muto and George Springer. No. <laughs> I don't think anybody would be. I was screwing around with this on Twitter, but they actually do have a chance in a weirdly depressed market to just, like, build a super team. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a series of moves which would not be outlandish and would not blow up payroll to, like, 270 or whatever, right. in which they would put together a low-variance 110-win team, basically. <laughs> they, they could basically be the Dodgers in this offseason if they wanted to be. Right. You know, you sign Springer and Real Muto, you trade for Francisco Lindor, and you sign some pitching. That's it. Yeah. That's not, none of that is impossible or even implausible. None of it would probably even cost your top prospects. I was talking about this with the scout today. They could just take the 20 million they're saving for Cano and hand out two one-year deals to Taiwan Walker and James Paxson. Right. Or pick your guys. Corey Kluber. Yeah. Charlie Morton is out there. Jake Odorizzi is out there. There's a lot of pitching that is going to get squeezed yeah that had john gray might literally be a non-tender that had bad a lot of them had bad or injured 2020s in samples that are so meaninglessly small the brewers are talking about non-tendering Corey Kniebel, like right so you go out there you sign two or three more pitchers because again, you want to build a pitching staff where David Peterson's your sixth or seventh starter. That and if you're your signing goal. like James Paxton, Taiwan Walker and Charlie Morton, there's a good chance one of them gets hurt in spring training. Right. <laughs> you're still going to need David Peterson. Um, so, so you do that. You also, you also bring in a couple of relievers and you just sign Springer and Real Muto and trade for Lindor. And it's not actually impossible for them to do all of that. And that would put them at like, Probably 220 would Not be my guess. maybe. Yeah. I'm assuming some relief, reliever signings yeah. here. You're yeah, also like gonna... clearing like mats and right. getting on tender some guys to clear. You probably would at that point because you might actually need some 40-man spots. But Right. And the only guy you have to trade for there is Lindor. Yeah. So you're not giving up. And you've you've made J.D. Davis and Ahmed Rosario and whatever else you're trading. You know, you could include David Peterson in that trade. You could include Andres Jimenez in that trade. You've made those guys surplus at that point. All right. So the problem, I guess, in the medium term is you still have to deal with kind of those money in 2021 coming back on. And you don't have a lot coming off. Sure. I mean. So there's some accounting. It's not my problem. No, it's not my problem. Or your problem. <laughs> Um, and also, I do think there's a real chance that Cano either, you know, gets suspended again, retires, is willing to negotiate a buyout. Sure. I don't necessarily know that you're actually on the hook for the $40 million you're theoretically on the hook for. I think you do have to plan as if you are. But, right. Um, I don't think the Mets are going to do that. It doesn't seem like they're going to do that, but they do actually have the technical ability to do that. Yeah. Stroman accepting the qualifying offer actually makes that a lot easier, too. Yeah. 
because you're already one. You know, you basically need four guys plus some role players, and you've already got one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, you need you need three more bats, and then you need some role pitching. On that note, but, question two: You've spoken about the possibility of the Mets taking on Carlos Carrasco's contract, lessen the price in Francisco Lindor trade, and the possibility of taking both Craig Kimbrell and you Darvish for effectively nothing. Imagine the Mets enter next season have acquired all four of those players, re-signed Stroman and signed Real Muto, plus of course made some other smaller signings where appropriate. We assume that Rosario, Jimenez, and Davis were all shipped out in these trades. In addition to a few minor leaguers, they'll need a third baseman or left field, so let's have fun and throw Yasiel Puig out in the outfield. It's no longer fun, unfortunately, Matthew, since he is a pending sexual assault suit. But well, Yeah, I, I don't think that yeah. one's going to happen. Yeah. The team would look like this. Uh, Ramudo at catcher, Alonzo Smith at first base, DH, Cano, McNeil, Lindor, Puig, Nemo, Conforto. The rotation of DeGrom, Darvish, Carrasco, Stroman, Peterson, and eventually Syndergaard. Of course, Diaz, Kimbrel, Batanzas, etc. in the bullpen. If I want another starting quality infielder, you can move McNeil around. Uh, you get like Tommy Lestella or something. Um, regardless, I'm being overly optimistic, but I feel like the 2021 Mets might be better than the Braves and about equal to the Dodgers. What say you too? Well, they can do that, as Jarrett just outlined. Yeah, they can do, they can do better than that, and mm. you know I think you do have to, you know, kick. It, it's not going to be Puig, but there's other outfielders of, you know, you can you can replace Puig in this situation with Michael Brantley, and the calculus sure, doesn't yeah. change any, or you know whomever. Uh, and there's there's guys there's multi positional infield guys like they could go get Marvin Gonzalez or Kike Hernandez or somebody and yeah that that's not an issue or Lestella there's guys out there that they can just get to fill that spot. Hassan Kim has certainly come up a bit. Yeah. Question three. I'm curious how you feel about Biden's apparent strategy of completely ignoring Trump and his antics now that the election's over. As with the two of you, I'm not a huge fan of Biden, but certainly don't have to think twice about voting for him even living in New Jersey. However, I think this is the proper strategy to give Trump as little oxygen as possible to the extent that Biden has any control over that, which is minimal, but still and avoid legitimizing any of his bullshit while anticipating that Biden will take power on January 20th with or without Trump's consent. Do you agree or do you think Biden needs to be sounding the alarm daily about what Trump and the Republicans are up to? Um, I'm going to read an excerpt from the recently delivered (laughs) opinion in the Pennsylvania federal court case. In this action, the Trump cam, I skip around a little bit. In this action, the Trump campaign and the plaintiffs seek to discard millions of votes legally cast by Pennsylvanians from all corners, from Greene County to Pike County and everywhere in between. In other words, plaintiffs ask this court to disenfranchise almost 7 million voters. This court has been unable to find any case in which a plaintiff has sought such a drastic remedy in the contest of an election in terms of the sheer volume of votes asked to be invalidated. One might expect that when seeking such a startling outcome, a plaintiff would come formidably armed with compelling legal arguments and factual proof of rampant corruption, such that this court would have no option but to regrettably grant the proposed injunctive relief despite the impact it would have on such a large group of citizens. That has not happened. Instead, this court has been presented with strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations, unpled in the operative complaint, and unsupported by evidence. In the United States of America, this cannot justify the disenfranchisement of a single voter, let alone all the voters of its sixth most populated state. Our people, laws, and institutions demand more. 
at bottom, plaintiffs have failed to meet their burden to state a claim upon which relief may be granted. That's called a 12B6 motion, in right. case you're not familiar with federal court pleadings. It is literally, you dumb fucking asshole, you filed a bad lawsuit. Therefore, I grant defendants' motions and dismiss plaintiffs' action with prejudice. This was not a lefty federal district court judge. Um... I believe this guy is from the Federalist Society. Uh, yeah. He, he was a member of the Federalist Society at Penn State. Uh, he was, in fact... You know, he, he was an Obama appointee, but it was part of a deal with, I believe, Pat Toomey. Sure. So... Ah, uh, the Obama administration. I, that's actually pretty common. Usually, I know, I know. Usually for federal district court judges, when the senator's home state is the opposite party, you do two for one. Yeah. So that's actually pretty common. Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, as I'm sure a lot of people do. Uh, I think the president-elect's best tact at this point is to just basically do what he's done and pretend he's the president because the actual president's decided not to be the president anymore. Sure. Uh, I wish the media was a little more forthright in calling what's happening what's happening. I don't think it would serve any purpose for the president-elect to do so personally. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then it just turns into a partisan, you know, there's a Streisand effect factor right. there. It turns it into a partisan, he said, she said. If I was more concerned about it working, I would say that. Uh, I I have only for brief minutes of anxiety attacks. <laughs> I thought this stood any chance of even coming close to working. These lawsuits are getting dismissed. They don't have... It's a very poorly done coup. It <laughs> right. is a coup. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that, but yes. it's a very poorly done coup. It is undermining our democratic institutions. It is debasing the office of the presidency. Uh, lawyers should be getting sanctioned and disbarred over this. None of the people supporting this should ever get elected to political office again. I don't know that it actually makes any sense for Joe Biden to say any of that. Right. Uh. And now it's not a good spot. There are, it appears, thankfully, enough Republican elections officials, politicians, judges, etc., who actually believe in the rule of law over the rule of I want my party to win, to where this is, appears like it's not going to completely collapse. But it is disturbingly close. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I, you know, I, I just, it's, it's really just sucks and it's disappointing. You know, I, I've made as many four seasons total landscaping jokes as anybody. I apparently have a t-shirt on the way or a t-shirt that's already arrived, but funny story about that. I'll tell you off air. Uh Um, but you someone told me you were going to tell me who sent it to you last week and then forgot. So, oh yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. fine, Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I, it's really disappointing that 
the reaction of, let's say, 85% of national Republicans is to just shut the fuck up. Because you got the 5% on one side, and you can make Mitt Romney jokes and George W. Bush jokes, and I am certainly not a fan of either of those men's politics, and George W. Bush especially has caused a hell of a lot of harm in the world over the last 20 years. However, I do think at some basic level they believe in like the American political system in a so way that it just one, doesn't seem like most of these other people do. My one issue with that is like Mitt Romney could stop this tomorrow if he actually wanted to. He just pulls Murkowski and Collins into a room and says, I'm going to McConnell and saying I'm caucusing with the Dems. I think if that's he- like the nuclear option that he would do if this got any more serious. Yeah. I think he's also made a calculation that this sure. is not actually at that level of seriousness yet. Uh, and he's probably right. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it just isn't. And it's it's bad. It, it's very bad. There's only so many ways you can say it's bad. You've got, you know, like Tucker Carlson, who is a essentially a conspiracy theorist who has a nightly entertainment show on a nominal news network the other night just like went like this is bullshit they've gone too far and this dude who has done more than probably anybody in the news media to promote the donald trump brand and the donald trump brand of politics started getting attacked by these people yeah tucker carlson if you're at a point where you're attacking Tucker Carlson for being a rhino, where the fuck did you end up? Someone uh, made a tweet that I saw before we started recording that was like, I wonder how Republicans and Fox News feel after spending like all these years radicalizing their base and now they're not radical enough for their base. Listen, you lost. It yeah. happened. Yeah. I, I, we were both pretty upset when the Democrats lost in 2016, even though neither one of us actually liked the Democratic presidential candidate. Yep. But it was it was upsetting. It was disappointing. It was upsetting to me that this was this close. Sure. That the election actually could have been swung if, you know, three states had voted a point and a half to the right. That's, that is what it is. Some You know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But... You have to continue playing by the rules of the game, otherwise the entire thing falls apart. The American political system is based on the idea that most of the people involved in it will have a basic level of good faith. Once you lose the basic level of good faith, it starts falling apart very quickly. When people stop trusting institutions, it it falls apart very quickly, and that's true for people on the left and the right. And, you know, to see it I don't know how we come back from this. I sure hope we do. We might, but it's hard to tell right now how. Uh, But I don't actually think there's anything the president-elect could do to make it any better. You know, you can either have a tantrum of your own or you can pretend to be president. Those were the two options here. He's decided to pretend to be president. I think that was probably the right call, but you know, you, you don't have a lot of, 
You there's no looking- uh, there's no marshal of the Supreme Court to enforce this. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, that this is a flaw in the system that the lame duck president gets to hang around for two and a half months with most of his powers still intact. And it relies on the lame duck president acting at a certain level of good faith that the vast majority of prior lame duck presidents have. Again, this is a West Wing episode. And this this lame duck president just won't. And, you know, he was out there tweeting today. He's tweeting one American News Network video clips. I watched a couple of them just because I was curious what they were saying. This is like communist like totalitarian state propaganda type stuff. And I'm not saying communist is a derogatory political system. I'm saying that this is like the kind of stuff you'd have expected from like Stalinesque Russia. Like Pravda. (laughs) You know, this is just, it also, it had like the production quality of like cable access, high school television, which was Mm -hmm. weird. I don't know. The whole thing's just depressing. Um, Speaking of depressing, let's swing it to the Facebook group. Q for the P from David. And looking at their respective careers, there are a lot of similarities between David Wright and Robinson Cano. This came in a day before the Cano uh, positive test. Yeah, Their 162-game averages, Wright, uh, 25 homers, 99 RBIs, 296, 376, 491. Cano, 24 homers, 94 RBIs, 303, 352, 492 are very similar and both won two gold gloves. The only difference were Wright's stolen bases and Cano's contact ability. So if Wright had health like Cano, averaged 159 games over 11 years, would his career numbers have ended up looking similar? Wright was pretty much done by 31, while Cano has collected 785 hits since then. Uh, if David Wright had Robinson Cano's health and durability, he would be a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Do you think David Wright will ever actually get like a hall of fame case behind him because he's actually not as far off so this is the this is like the don mattingly basically is the i probably not because again it's a different the baseball writers association of america has a more do-eyed view of the 1980s than anything after it yeah uh which is funny because there's like no very few Hall of Famers from the 1980s. Uh, Bill James was writing about this in uh, the last historical abstract in 98, that it's kind of like a missing generation of Hall of Famers, which is yeah. uh, continued. I mean, Wright is 24th on Jaws, which is, you know, there's 15 Hall of Famers at third base, so it's not there. But I think there's a decent chance he hangs around the ballot for a while, at least. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what that ballot's going to look like and five years you know it's starting to trickle in i do you think anyone gets elected this year yeah you think it's chilling yeah yeah i think there's i don't know it's a weird year <laughs> there's nobody that is going to get elected this year that's going to make people happy <laughs> fair enough i mean you know you look at where the hall of fame voting Returns from last year. The top returning person on the ballot is, I don't even know how to describe Kurt Schilling, a neo-fascist. Sure. Uh, has has neo-fascist sympathy? I don't even know. Has tweeted about hanging 
writers was involved in some type of weird video game thing that lost the state of Rhode Island. A whole I lot played of that money. game actually. It's not bad. Yeah, it, it's just not not a good guy. Um, the Roger Clemens. Uh, I'm, you know, Google Roger Clemens, Mindy McCready, right? Uh, Barry Bonds, the number of domestic abuse allegations. Uh, or Mescal was recently, there was recently uncovered a very serious domestic abuse allegation against him. Uh, and those are the top four returning vote getters. Mm-hmm. And now you're already down to Scott Rowland at 35%. Who probably should be it. Yeah. And Billy Wagner. At thirty-two percent, Scott Rowland is like David Wright if he was healthier for three more years. <laughs> Scott Rowland's a much better player than he ever gets credit for. Yes. Uh, very, very substantially better player than he ever gets credit. For. But like this, and there's basically nobody coming on to this ballot. The Scott Rowland is what the BBWA thinks Omar Vizquel is. <laughs> yeah. You know the the top people coming onto the ballot are Tim Hudson and Mark Burley. I don't think either of them is going to get tons of support coming in. Mark Burley, Burley is like I, a weird. I, I don't think he should be in, but he's not as far off as you think if you apply a modern standard for major league starters. Yeah. I mean, those are, those guys both had two hundred wins, and yeah. they both had, you know. ERAs that are like on the borderline of what would get you in. Uh, so I don't think either one of them would be necessarily an awful pick, but I also yeah. don't think either one of them is getting. Hilariously enough, Mark Burley has post. the same exact draw score as Sandy Koufax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a. I don't Jay for quite a number of years. Like, that's probably a fly. I'm guessing Jay would also. <laughs> Sandy Colfax is a very difficult uh, Hall of Fame candidate to evaluate. Sure. Uh, but like Mark Burley's around, Andy Pettit and Frank Tanana and Wilbur Wood and Tommy John, who have all been sort of. Right. You know, like from Billy Pierce, you know, ahead of Whitey Ford. So. Yeah. It's uh, like not a. It's not a ridiculous. Like, I would not be. I don't think Mark Burley makes the Hall of Fame significantly worse. Yeah. Same with Tim Hudson. Showing got 90%, or excuse me, 70%. It's his ninth year on the ballot. Yeah. Guys in their ninth year on the ballot who got 70% the previous year usually get in, and there's You're already seeing, like, certain writers that even surprise me kind of, like, making their, I don't want to say peace with it, but talking themselves into doing it. Giving themselves Kurt, permission, whatever you want to call it. Kurt Schilling, if you evaluate Kurt Schilling's career as a regular season and postseason pitcher, oh, yeah, he should be in. is a very easy Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, if you're evaluating Kurt Schilling's character, but again, there's a lot of people, you know. I've seen people that say they will not vote for Kurt Schilling because of his character that will vote for Andrew Jones. Sure. And you got some really fucked up priorities if that's where you're, you know, if, if you've ended up there. Uh, and I don't think it's fair to rank bad guy. There's a lot of bad guys on this ballot. There's a lot of people with domestic abuse allegations of seriousness. 
Um, but, you know. Now look at pitcher draws for the Hall of Fame, and it's just yeah interesting. You know, uh, who's the highest active, has the best highest draw score by active pitchers right now? I assume if it was Verlander, you wouldn't be. No, it's Verlander. Saying, I thought oh, it was. Verlander. I thought it was going to be Kershaw, and he's third. No, it's, yeah. it's Verlander. Yeah, it's yeah. Verlander, Greinke, Kershaw. I mean, they're all close enough that I can change by next year. Yeah, I assumed it was Verlander, and it probably will change next year because I think both Greinke and Kershaw will pass him, assuming a relatively normal, healthy season. Which, <laughs> who the fuck knows? Yeah, but. Yeah, I, yeah, I think Schilling's gonna make it this year, and that will be disappointing. But I think it's like you know the, the alternate where gonna... Marvis Skell makes it isn't a whole lot better, right? He'll tweet a bunch of dumb shit. I think he actually suspended from Twitter, but he's going to give probably a perfunctory normal Hall of Fame speech. I think. Yeah, there'll be like, like two winks and nods. Yeah, so. yeah, sure. Yeah, he'll think he'll be doing what Piazza did when Piazza talked about how uh, how thorough the uh, BBWAA was in evaluating candidacies. Yeah, you know, whole. But it'll be like weirdly obnoxious, and yeah, kind of about his. He'll make like a proud boy's hand symbol, like on the side, or yeah, something. Yeah. But yes, I do think Schilling is going to be elected. I think Schilling is going to be elected. I think Bonds and Clemens will go up, but not enough to get in, setting up a really weird final showdown for them in 2022. Who's Um, who's on next year's ballot? Anybody? That is a good question. I actually don't know. 2022 potential Hall of Fame ballot. So the new people... (laughs) Well, A-Rod... <sighs> Not David Ortiz. To... Well, that's going to be yeah. a fun one. Um, but then it's like Mark Teixeira, Jimmy Rollins, Carl Crawford, Jake Peavy. Nobody that's really going to. David Ortiz is going to expose the hypocrisy of some sectors of the baseball writing field in the same way uh, that the hypocrisy of Republican politicians we've been talking about on and off for the last half hour has also gotten exposed. And just like in that case, nobody will fucking care. I mean, again, Pudge Rodriguez is literally went in first ballot. Yeah. In the Mitchell Report. Um, if you want to feel old, uh, Prince Fielder and Scott Casimir will both be eligible on this Hall of Fame ballot as well. As will uh, Ryan Howard. Uh, Billy Butler. Ryan, Jesus. Ryan Howard's going to get more support than you'd think, I feel like. Let's take a look at Ryan Howard, then. Did I scroll past him? Jonathan Papelbon? Ryan Howard just feels like one where... Like, I don't... I can just see John Heyman writing the Ryan Howard should be in the Hall of Fame column. Yeah. I could could just see that. You know, steroid-free... Hit a lot of home runs before he, you know, was was the best. That would power be the ultimate double down on his tweet about it. So, preeminent slugger Ryan Howard. Uh, 
Ryan Howard for his career, 258, 343, 515 for 125 OPS+. Plus. 382 homers, 1,194 RBIs. Do you want to guess his baseball reference war? 20. 14.7. I mean, a lot of that's his last five years is like taking five or six wins off the table. So you're technically correct. Is he in the top 100 in first base, Jaws? 141st. He is next to... I, I still think John Hammond's voting for. Let's be clear. He is, oh man, two spots above Lyle Overbay, three spots above Sean Casey, the mayor, three spots below Eric Hosmer, six spots below Greg Jeffries, who I guess played more games at first base than uh, any other position. Other notable players ahead of him, according to Jaws, Dave Magadan, Richie Sexton, <laughs> Hal Chase for you. Uh, this, this is this is going to require you to do Aubrey Huff. Aubrey Huff is ahead of Ryan Howard. Because I'm genuinely curious. Mm-hmm. Is he ahead or behind James Loney? Oh, boy. Uh, he is ahead of Kendrys Morales and Adam LaRoche. Let me do a little uh, find on this page. He is ahead of James Loney. I'm actually a little surprised. <laughs> I don't know what that says. But... Yeah. <sighs> he is not ahead of... I said Aubrey Huff already. Mike Sweeney is ahead of him. Uh, the original John Mayberry. Travis Hafner. Actually, we're kind of getting into good players now. Probably so. had some good years. Yeah. Ugh. Houses around him. Yeah, those are all the funny ones, I guess. Yeah. Well, this was a show. This was indeed a show. Got very long and very political. Yeah. I got some emails about this one, I feel like. Yeah, and we'll answer them, or maybe not, next week on another edition of For All You Kids Out There. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.